Famine Deaths Due to the Climatic Effects of Nuclear War By Vasco Grillo The views expressed here are my own, not those of Alliance to Feed the Earth in Disasters, ALFT, for which I work as a contractor. Please assume this is always the case unless stated otherwise. Summary Here's a list of bullet points. The initial motivation for my analysis was combining the results of two views about nuclear winter. One linked to Alan Robock, Rutgers University, Michael Mills, National Center for Atmospheric Research, and Brian Toon, University of Colorado, which is illustrated in Shear 2022. We estimate more than 2 billion people could die from nuclear war between India and Pakistan, and more than 5 billion could die from a war between the United States and Russia. Another link to John Reisner, Los Alamos National Laboratory, which is illustrated in Reisner 2018. Our analysis demonstrates that the probability of significant global cooling from a limited exchange scenario as envisioned in previous studies is highly unlikely, a conclusion supported by examination of natural analogues, such as large forest fires and volcanic eruptions. I estimate 12.9 m expected famine deaths due to the climatic effects of nuclear war before 2050, multiplying 3.3% probability of large nuclear war before 2050, multiplying 32% probability of at least one offensive nuclear detonation before 2050. 10.3% probability of large nuclear war conditional on the above. 392M famine deaths due to the climatic effects of a large nuclear war, multiplying. 4.43% famine death rate due to the climatic effects for 22.1 TG. 22.1 trillion grams, that is million tons, of soot injected into the stratosphere in a large nuclear war, multiplying 2.09k offensive nuclear detonations in a large nuclear war, 21.5% countervalue nuclear detonations, 0.0491 TG per countervalue nuclear detonation, multiplying 189kT of yield per countervalue nuclear detonation. 2.60 asterisk 10 carat dash 4 TG a KT of soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue yield. 8.86 G people, 8.86 billion. My expected annual famine deaths due to the climatic effects of nuclear war before 2050 are 496 K, and my 5th and 95th percentile are 0 and 30.9 M. My 95th percentile is 62.3 times my best guess, which means there is lots of uncertainty. Bear in mind my estimates only refer to the famine deaths due to the climatic effects. I exclude famine deaths resulting directly or indirectly from infrastructure destruction and heat mortality. I obtained my best guess for the soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue yield giving the same weight to results I inferred from Reisner's and Toon's views, but they differ substantially. If I attributed all weight to the result I deduced from Reisner's, Toon's, view, my estimates for the expected mortality would become 0.121, 8.27, times as large. In other words, my best guess is hundreds of millions of famine deaths due to the climatic effects, but tens of millions putting all weight in the result I deduced from Reisner's view, and billions putting all weight in the one I deduced from Toon's view. Further research would be helpful to figure out which view should be weighted more heavily. My expected famine deaths due to the climatic effects of a large nuclear war are 17.7 mtg, per soot injected into the stratosphere, and 0.992 mmt, per total yield. 
These are 32.3% and 7.81% of the 54.8 MTG and 12.7 MMT of Shear 2022, which I deem too pessimistic. My estimate of 12.9 M expected famine deaths, due to the climatic effects of nuclear war before 2050 is 2.05%. The 630 M implied by Luisa Rodriguez's results for nuclear exchanges between the United States and Russia, so I would say they are significantly pessimistic. I am also surprised by Luisa's distribution for the famine death rate due to the climatic effects given at least one offensive, nuclear detonation in the United States or Russia. Her 5th and 95th percentile are 41% and 99.6%, which I think are too close and high. I believe Mike and awaited Reisner's view. I guess the famine deaths due to the climatic effects of a large nuclear war would be 1.16 times the direct deaths. Putting all the weight in the soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue yield I inferred from Reisner's, Toon's, view. The famine deaths due to the climatic effects would be 0.140, 9.59, times the direct deaths. In other words, my best guess is that famine deaths due to the climatic effects are within the same order of magnitude of the direct deaths, but one order of magnitude lower putting all weight in the result I inferred from Reisner's view, and one higher putting all weight in the one I inferred from Toon's view. Combining my mortality estimates with data from Denkenberger 2016. I estimate the expected cost-effectiveness of planning, research and development of resilient food solutions is $28.70 per life, which is two orders of magnitude more cost-effective than GiveWell's top charities. Nevertheless, I suspect the values from Denkenberger 2016 are very optimistic, such that I am greatly overestimating the cost-effectiveness. I guess the true cost-effectiveness is within the same order of magnitude of that of GiveWell's top charities, although this adjustment is not resilient. Furthermore, I have argued corporate campaigns for chicken welfare are three orders of magnitude more cost-effective than GiveWell's top charities. I do not think activities related to resilient food solutions are cost-effective at increasing the long-term value of the future. By not cost-effective, I mostly mean I do not see those activities being competitive with the best opportunities to decrease AI risk and improve biosecurity and pandemic preparedness at the margin, like long-term future funds marginal grants. It is often hard to find interventions which are robustly beneficial. In my mind, decreasing the famine deaths due to the climatic effects of nuclear war is no exception, and I think it is unclear whether that is beneficial or harmful from both a near-term and long-term perspective, although I strongly oppose killing people, including via nuclear war. Feel free to check my personal recommendations for funders who have been supporting efforts to decrease nuclear risk. That's the end of the list. Introduction. I have been assuming the importance of the climatic effects of nuclear war is roughly in agreement with Denkenberger 2018 and Louisa's post, but I had not looked much into the relevant literature myself. I got interested in doing so following some of the discussion in my global warming post and Beans and Mike's analyses. The initial motivation for my analysis was combining the results of two views about nuclear winter. One link to Alan Robock, Rutgers University, Michael Mills, National Center for Atmospheric Research, and Brian Toon, University of Colorado, which is illustrated in Shear 2022. We estimate more than 2 billion people could die from nuclear war between India and Pakistan, and more than 5 billion could die from a war between the United States and Russia. Another link to John Reisner, Los Alamos National Laboratory, which is illustrated in Reisner 2018. 
Our analysis demonstrates that the probability of significant global cooling from a limited exchange scenario as envisioned in previous studies is highly unlikely, a conclusion supported by examination of natural analogues, such as large forest fires and volcanic eruptions. Denkenberger 2018 did not integrate the results of Reisner 2018, which was published afterwards. Louisa says, quote, As a final point, I'd like to emphasize that the nuclear winter is quite controversial, for example, see Singer, 1985. Seitz, 2011. Robock, 2011. Coup et al., 2019. Reisner et al., 2019. Porzata et al., 2016. Reisner et al., 2018. Also see the summary of the nuclear winter controversy in Wikipedia's article on nuclear winter. Critics argue that the parameters fed into the climate models, like, how much smoke would be generated by a given exchange, as well as the assumptions in the climate models themselves, for example, the way clouds would behave, are suspect, and may have been biased by the researchers' political motivations, for example, see. Singer, 1985. Seitz, 2011. Reisner et al., 2019. Porzata et al., 2016. Reisner et al., 2018. I take these criticisms very seriously, and believe we should probably be skeptical of this body of research as a result. For the purposes of this estimation, I assume that the nuclear winter research comes to the right conclusion. However, if we discounted the expected harm caused by US-Russia nuclear war for the fact that the nuclear winter hypothesis is somewhat suspect, the expected harm could shrink substantially. End quote. I also felt like Bean's analysis and awaited Rutgers' view, and Michael Hinge and awaited Los Alamos, see my comments. My goal is estimating the famine deaths due to the climatic effects of nuclear war, not all famine deaths, nor heat mortality, related to hot or cold exposure. I also do a very shallow analysis of the cost-effectiveness of activities related to resilient food solutions. Discuss potential negative effects of decreasing famine deaths. Heading. Famine deaths due to the climatic effects. Subheading. Overview. I arrived at 12.9 m, equals 0.0330 times 392 times 10 to the power of 6. Famine deaths due to the climatic effects of nuclear war before 2050, multiplying. Here's a list of bullet points. 3.3% probability of a large nuclear war before 2050. 392m famine deaths due to the climatic effects of a large nuclear war, which I determined by multiplying. Famine death rate due to the climatic effects of a large nuclear war, which I obtained from the soot injected into the stratosphere in a large nuclear war. I calculated this from the product between offensive nuclear detonations in a large nuclear war, countervalue nuclear detonations as a fraction of the total. Soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue nuclear detonation. Global population. That's the end of the list. Unlike Denkenberger 2018 and Louisa, I did not run a Monte Carlo simulation modeling all non-probabilistic variables as distributions, but I do not think that would meaningfully move my estimate of the expected deaths. Here's a list of bullet points. Assuming all four factors describing the soot injected into the stratosphere before 2050 given at least one offensive nuclear detonation, before 2050 are independent, as I would do for simplicity anyway in a Monte Carlo simulation, the product between their expected values would be the expected product, e, 
x y equals e x e y if x and y are independent. From figure 5b of Shear 2022, the number of people without food in year 2 is roughly proportional to the soot injected into the stratosphere. To be precise, from the data on table 1, the linear regression with null intercept of the former on the latter has a coefficient of determination, r squared, of 96.8%. Therefore, since the mean is a linear operator, e, a x plus b, equals a e, x, plus b, one can obtain the expected number of people without food in year 2 from the expected soot injected into the stratosphere. Christian Rule argues for the nonlinearity of nuclear war effects. I agree, as I guess starvation deaths increase logistically with the soot injected into the stratosphere, but I believe injections of soot into the stratosphere for large nuclear wars fall in its roughly linear part. I define such wars as having at least 1.07k offensive nuclear detonations, and figure 2b of Toon 2008, presented below, suggests emitted soot increases linearly with the number of detonations in that case. If the linear part of the logistic curve starts sooner or later, the starvation resulting from small nuclear wars will tend to be larger, smaller, and therefore I would be underestimating overestimating expected mortality. My point estimates respect the expected values, not medians, of the variables to which the result of interest is proportional to. That's the end of the list. There's an image here, with the caption. Figure 2. Sort scenarios. A. Casualties, fatalities plus injuries, and fatalities only and, b, suit generation as a function of the number of 100, kt explosions in China, Russia, and the US. Regions are targeted in decreasing order of population density. In the US, for example, the density would fall below 550 people, kilometer 2 after the 1000th target. Subheading. Probability of large nuclear war. I put the probability of large nuclear war before 2050 at 3.3% is equal to 0.32 times 0.103, which is the product between 32% probability of at least one offensive nuclear detonation before 2050. 10.3% probability of large nuclear war conditional on the above. I motivate these values below. Subheading. Probability of at least one offensive nuclear detonation. I placed the probability of at least one offensive nuclear detonation before 2050 at 32%, in agreement with Metaculous Community Prediction on 31 August, 2023. This is reasonable based on. Here's a list of bullet points. The base rate. There have been offensive nuclear detonations in one year, 1945, over the 79, equals 2023. 1945 plus 1, during which they could occur. This suggests an annual probability of at least one offensive nuclear detonation of 1.27%, equals 179th. There are still 26 years, equals 2050, 2024, before 2050. So the base rate implies a probability of at least one offensive nuclear detonation before 2050 of 28 point. 3% equals 1, 1 to 0.0127, carat 26, which is 88.4%, equals the 28th of March, 32, of Metaculous Community Prediction. Louisa's Prediction. 1.1% per year, see table. 25% equals 1, 1 to 0.011, carat 26, before 2050, 
which is 78.1%, equals 25.0032 of Metaculous Community Prediction. That's the end of the list. Subheading. Probability of escalation into large nuclear war. I presupposed a beta distribution for the fraction of nuclear warheads being detonated before 2050 given at least one offensive nuclear detonation before then. I defined it from 61 th and 89th percentiles equal to 1.06% equals 109.43 asterisk 10 carat 3 and 10.6% equals 1 asterisk 10 carat 3, 9.43 asterisk 10 carat 3, given. Here's a list of bullet points. Metaculous community predictions on the 26th of September, 2023 of 39%, equals 1 to 0.61, and 11%, equals 1 to 0.89, for the probability of at least 101k offensive nuclear detonations before 2050 given at least one, offensive nuclear detonation before then. 9.43k, equals, 9.50 plus, 9.22 to 9.50, forward slash, 2052 to 2032, asterisk, 2037 to 2032, asterisk 10 carat 3, 1, expected nuclear warheads minus 1, which I obtained. For 2037, equals, 2050 to 2024, 2, which is midway between now and 2050. Linearly interpolating between the mean of Metaculous 25th and 75th percentile community predictions on the 11th of September, 2023 4. 2032, 9.50k, equals, 8.29 plus 10.7, asterisk 10 carat 3 or 2. 2052, 9.22k, equals, 4.84 plus 13.6, asterisk 10 carat 3 or 2. That's the end of the list. The alpha and beta parameters of the beta distribution are 0.189 and 5.03, and its cumulative distribution function, CDF, is below. The horizontal axis is the fraction of nuclear warheads being detonated, and the vertical one the probability of less than a certain fraction being detonated. The probability of escalation into a large nuclear war, which I defined as at least 1.07k offensive nuclear detonations, corresponding to 11.3%. Equals 1.07 asterisk 10 carat 3 and 9.43 asterisk 10 carat 3 of nuclear warheads being detonated is 10.3%. There's an image here with the caption CDF of the fraction of nuclear warheads being detonated. Subheading Soot injected into the stratosphere. I expect 22.1 TG equals 2.09 times 10 cubed times 0.215 times 0.0491 of soot being injected into the stratosphere in a large nuclear war. This is the product between 2.09k offensive nuclear detonations in a large nuclear war. 21.5% countervalue nuclear detonations. 0.0491tg equals 189 times 2.60 times 10 to the power of negative 4 per countervalue nuclear detonation, multiplying. 189 kT yield per countervalue nuclear detonation. 2.60 asterisk 10 carat dash 4 TG a kT of soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue yield. I explain the above estimates in the next sections. I neglected counterforce nuclear detonations because from figure 4 of Wagman 2020, the soot injected into the stratosphere for an available fuel per area of 5 G. CM carat 2 is negligible.
I estimated an available fuel per area of G, CM carat 2 for counterforce nuclear detonations of 3.07 GSCM carat 2, which is lower than the above 5 GSCM carat 2. Subheading. Offensive nuclear detonations. I expect 2.09 K, equals 1 plus 0.221 times 9.43 times 10 cubed, offensive nuclear detonations in a large nuclear war. This is 1 plus the product between 22.1% of nuclear warheads being offensively detonated in a large nuclear war, which I computed. Generating 1M Monte Carlo samples of the beta distribution describing the fraction of nuclear warheads being detonated, before 2050 given at least one offensive nuclear detonation before then. Taking the mean of the above samples larger or equal to 11.3%, which is the minimum fraction for a large nuclear war. 9.43k expected nuclear warheads minus 1. The 5th and 95th percentile fraction of nuclear warheads being detonated in a large nuclear war are 11.8% and 43.6%, which correspond to 1.11k, equals 1 plus 0.118 times 9.43 times 10 cubed, and 4.11k, equals 1 plus 0.436 times 9.43 times 10 cubed, offensive nuclear detonations. I compared the offensive nuclear detonations, given at least one before 2050, implied by my beta distribution with those of a metaculous question whose predictions I ended up not using. The 5th, 50th and 95th percentile of the beta distribution are 1.84 asterisk 10 carat dash 6%, 0.362% and 19.2% and the respective detonations given at least one are. 1.00, equals 1 plus 1.84 times 10 to the power of negative 8 times 9.43 times 10 cubed, which is 90.1%, equals 1.00 or 1.11, metaculous 5th percentile community prediction of 1.11. 35.1, equals 1 plus 0.00362 times 9.43 times 10 cubed, which is 3.97, equals 35.18.84 times metaculous median community prediction of 8.84, equals, 8.56 plus 9.11, 2. 1.81k, equals 1 plus 0.192 times 9.43 times 10 cubed, which is 21.5%, equals 1.81, metaculous 95th percentile community prediction of 8.42k, equals, 7.18 plus 9.66, 2 asterisk 10 carat 3. The mean of my beta distribution is 3.62%, equals 0 0.189, 0 0.189 plus 5.03, and therefore I expect 342, equals 1 plus 0 0.0362 times 9.43 times 10 cubed, offensive nuclear detonations given one offensive nuclear detonation before 2050, which is 9.74, equals 342 or 35.1, times my median detonations. Additionally, my 95th percentile is 1.81k, equals 1.81 times 10 cubed divided by 1.00, times my 5th percentile. Such high ratios illustrate nuclear war is predicted to be heavy-tailed, as has been the case for non-nuclear wars. From the above bullets, the predictions for the number of detonations, I arrived at fitting a beta distribution to the forecasts for two metaculous questions about the probability of escalation to large nuclear wars, 101k detonations, are not quite in line with the forecasts for another metaculous question explicitly about the number of detonations. 
the large difference for the 95th percentile is relevant because the right tail has a significant influence on the expected detonations, as can be seen from the high ratio between my mean and median detonations. I decided to rely on the two metaculous questions about escalation because of the importance of the right tail. The other requires forecasters to estimate the entire probability distribution, which I expect to lead to less accurate forecasts for the right tail. I would have to arbitrarily select two quantiles from the other in order to define the beta distribution. Subheading. Countervalue nuclear detonations. I assume 21.5% of the offensive nuclear detonations to respect countervalue targeting. This was Metaculous Median Community Prediction on 30 September, 2023 for the fraction of offensive nuclear detonations before 2050 which will be countervalue. I presumed 100% total burned area as a fraction of the burned area assuming different detonations did not compete. For fuel, that is that overlapping between burned areas is negligible. David Denkenberger commented that some additional area would be burned thanks to the combined effects of multiple detonations. I tend to agree, but. Here's a list of bullet points. This is not discussed in Reisner 2018 nor Toon 2008. For this effect to be significant, I guess there would have to be a meaningful overlap between the burned areas of countervalue detonations, whereas I am assuming it is negligible. I think the areas which would burn thanks to the combined effects of countervalue detonations would have low fuel load, thus not emitting much soot, because they would tend to be far away from the city center. The detonation points would presumably be near the dense city centers, and therefore population density, and fuel load would tend to decrease with the distance from the detonation point. The radius of my burned area is 7.23 kilometers. That's the end of the list. Subheading. Yield. I considered a yield per countervalue nuclear detonation of 189 kT, equals, 600 asterisk 335 plus 200 asterisk 300 plus 1511 asterisk 90 plus, 25 asterisk 8 plus 384 asterisk for 55 plus 500 asterisk, 5 by 150. Carrot 0 0.5 plus 288 by 400 plus 200 asterisk, 0 0.3 by 170. Carrot 0 0.5, 3708. This is the mean yield of the United States nuclear warheads in 2023, deployed or in reserve, but not retired, which I got from data in Table 1 of Christensen 2023. For the rows for which a range was provided for the yield, I used the geometric mean between its lower and upper bound. For context, my yield of 189 kT is 47.2% equals 189 if 400, the 400 kT mentioned by BIN, for a typical modern strategic nuclear warhead. 1.14 equals 189 if 166 times the yield of 166 kT equals 30.2 carat, 3 halves. Linked to the mean yield to the power of two-thirds implied by the data in Table 1 of Christensen 2023. Bean argues for an exponent of two-thirds, but the difference does not seem to matter much, as 1.14 is a small factor. 1.89 equals 189 or 100 times that of Toon 2008. 12.6 equals 189 or 15 times that of Hiroshima's nuclear detonation. For the 2.09k offensive nuclear detonations I expect in a large nuclear war, the minimum and maximum mean yield are 66.1kt, equals, 200 asterisk, 
0.3 by 170, carat 0.5 plus 25 asterisk 8 plus 500 asterisk. 5 by 150, carat 0.5 plus 1365 by 90, forward slash. 2.09 asterisk 10 carat 3, and 290 kt, equals. 384 by 455 plus 288 by 400 plus 600 by 335 plus 200 by 300 plus 618 by 90, forward slash, 2.09 asterisk 10 carat 3. I investigated the relationship between the burned area and yield a little, but, as I said just above, I do not think it is that important whether the area scales with yield to the power of two-thirds or one. Feel free to skip to the next section. In short, an exponent of Two-thirds makes sense if the energy released by the detonation is uniformly distributed in a spherical region, centered at the detonation point. This is apparently the case for blast pressure energy, so an exponent of two-thirds is appropriate for the blasted area. One makes sense if the energy released by the detonation propagates outwards with negligible losses, like the sun's energy radiating outwards into space. This is seemingly the case for thermal energy, so an exponent of one is appropriate for the burned area. The emitted soot is proportional to the burned area. So using the mean yield as I did presupposes burned area is proportional to yield, which is what is supposed in tune 2008. In particular, since the area within a given thermal energy flux contour varies linearly with yield for small yields, we assume linear scaling for the burned area. I guess this is based on the following passage of this chapter of the medical implications of nuclear war, the source provided in tune 2008. Quote. Thermal energy, unlike blast energy, which fills the volume surrounding it, instead radiates out into the surroundings. Thermal energy from a detonation will therefore be distributed over a hypothetical sphere that surrounds the detonation point. If the sphere's area is larger in direct proportion to the yield of a detonation, then the amount of energy per unit area passing through its surface would be unchanged. The radius of this hypothetical sphere varies as the square root of its area. Hence, the range at which a given amount of thermal energy per unit area is deposited varies as the square root of the yield. End quote. Presumably, Toon 2008 assumes the burned area is defined by this range, and therefore it is proportional to yield, since a circular area is proportional to the square of its radius. With respect to this, Bean said. Quote. Nor is the assumption that burned area will scale linearly with yield a particularly good one. I couldn't find it in the source they cite, and it flies in the face of all other scaling relationships around nuclear weapons. Per Glastone page 108, blast radius typically scales with the one-third power of yield, so we can expect damaged area from fire as well as blast to scale with the yield carat 2 or 3, since area is proportional to the square of the radius. End quote. According to the medical implications of nuclear war, see quotation above. The blasted area is indeed proportional to yield to the power of two-thirds, but the same may not apply to burned area. See quotation above starting with thermal energy. In fact, the results of NukeMap seem to be compatible with the assumption that the ground area enclosed by a spherical surface of a given energy flux is proportional to yield. For 0.1, 1, and 10 times my yield of 189 kT, that is 18.9, 189 and 1.89 k kT. The ground area enclosed by a spherical surface whose energy flux is 146 JSCM carat 2, for which, dry wood usually burns, r. For an airburst height of 0, just above the surface, 4.11, 4 
37.1 and 317 km carat 2. Based on the first and last pair of these estimates, burned area would be proportional to yield to the power of 0.956, equals log 10, 37.1 of 4.11, and 0.928, equals log 10, 314, 37.1. For airburst heights of 0.832, 1.83, and 3.93 km, which maximize the radius of the overpressure ring of 5 psi, 0.34 atm, of each yield, 1.94, 26.6, and 268 km2. Based on the first and last pair of these estimates, burned area would be proportional to yield to the power of 1.14, equals log 10, 26.6 or 1.94, and 1.00, equals log 10, 268, 26.6. The mean of the above, 4, exponents is 1.01, equals, 0.956 plus 0.928 plus 1.14 plus 1.00, 4, which suggests a value of 1 is appropriate. Nevertheless, I do not know how the above areas are estimated in NukeMap. Energy flux following an inverse square law, as described in the medical implications of nuclear war, makes sense if atmospheric losses are negligible, like with the sun's energy radiating outwards into space. Intuitively, I would have thought the losses were sufficiently high for the exponent to be lower than 1, and GPT for also guessed an exponent of two-thirds would be a better approximation. However, NukeMap's results do support an exponent of 1. Subheading Soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue yield. I set the soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue yield to 2.60 asterisk 10 carat dash for TGKT equals 3.15 times 10 to the power of negative 5 times 0.00215 carat 0.5. This is the geometric mean between 3.15 asterisk 10 carat dash 5 and 0.00215 TG. KT, 18, which I arrived at by adjusting results from Reisner 2018 and Reisner 2019, and Toon 2008 and Toon 2019. I describe how I did this in the next two sections, and discuss some considerations I did not cover in these sections in the one after them. There are other studies which have analyzed how much of the emitted soot is injected into the stratosphere, but I think only Reisner 2018, Reisner 2019, and Wagman 2020 modeled the whole causal chain. From Wagman 2020. Quote. An analysis of whether fires ignited by a nuclear war will cause global climatic and environmental consequences must address the following. The characteristics of the fires ignited by nuclear weapons, for example, intensity, spread, and whether they generate sufficient buoyancy for lofting emissions to high altitudes. These are a function of many factors, including number and yield of weapons, target type, fuel availability, meteorology, and geography. The composition of the fire emissions, whether emissions include significant amounts of black carbon, BC, and organic carbon, OC, aerosols, and gases affecting atmospheric chemistry. These are a function of the fuel type, carbon loading, oxygen availability, and other factors. Whether the emissions are self-lofted by the absorption of solar radiation and to what heights. This is a function primarily of meteorology and particle size, composition, and absorption of solar radiation. The physical and chemical evolution of BC and other aerosol species in the stratosphere. This is a function of stratospheric chemistry and dynamics. The Reisner et al. 2018 approach deviates from previous efforts by modeling aspects of all four bullet points above. 
motivated by the different conclusions that have been reached for this scenario, we make our own assessment, which also uses numerical models to address aspects of all four factors bulleted above. End quote. I did not integrate evidence from Wagman 2020, whose main author is affiliated with Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, because, rather than estimating the emitted soot as Reisner 2018 and Reisner 2019, it sets it to the soot injected into the stratosphere in tune 2007. Quote. Finally, we choose to release 5 TG, 5 times 10 carat 12 G, BC into the climate model per 100 fires, for consistency with the studies of Mills et al., 2008, 2014, Robock et al., 2007, Stenk et al., 2013, Toon et al., 2007, and Porzata et al., 2016. Those studies use an emission of 6.25 TGBC and assume 20% is removed by rainout during the plume rise, resulting in 5 TGBC remaining in the atmosphere. End quote. I did not include direct evidence from the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because I did not find empirical data about the resulting injections of soot into the stratosphere. Relatedly, Robok 2019 says. Quote. Between the 3rd of February and the 9th of August, 1945, an area of 461 square kilometers in 69 Japanese cities, including Hiroshima and Nagasaki, was burned during the USB-29 Superfortress air raids, producing massive amounts of smoke. Because of multiple uncertainties in smoke injected to the stratosphere, solar radiation observations, and surface temperature observations, it is not possible to formally detect a cooling signal from World War II smoke. These results do not invalidate nuclear winter theory that much more massive smoke emissions from nuclear war would cause large climate change, and impacts on agriculture. End quote. I also excluded evidence from Tambora's eruption. There were global impacts according to Oppenheimer 2003, but their magnitude is unclear, and I think the world has evolved too much in the last 200 years for me to extrapolate. Reisner 2018 and Reisner 2019. I estimated a soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue yield of 3.15 asterisk 10 carat 5 tg, kt, equals 0.0473, a 1.50 asterisk 10 carat 3, for Reisner 2018 and Reisner 2019. I calculated it from the ratio between 0.0473 tg, is equal to 0.224 times 0.211, of soot injected into the stratosphere, multiplying. 0.224 TG of emitted soot. 21.1% of emitted soot being injected into the stratosphere. Total yield of 1.50 kkt is equal to 100 times 15, given 100 low yield weapons of 15 kilotons. I got 0.224 TG is equal to 12.3 times 0.855 times 0.0213 of emitted soot, multiplying. Here's a list of bullet points. 12.3 TG equals 8.454 plus 23.77 to 8.454 forward slash 72.62 to 5.24 asterisk 22.1 to 5.24 of emitted soot if there was no rubble, which I determined. For my available fuel per area for countervalue nuclear detonations of 22.1 GSEM carat 2. Linearly interpolating the no-rubble results of Reisner 2019, see Table 1. For 5.24 and 72.62 GSEM carat 2, 8.454 and 23.77 TG. 
85.5% equals 3.158 3.692 to adjust for the presence of rubble. This is the ratio between the emitted soot of the rubble and no rubble results of Reissner 2018. See Table 1 of Reissner 2019. 2.13% to account for the overestimation of emitted soot per burned fuel. Reissner 2019 says there, BC, black carbon, that is soot, emission factor is high by a factor of 10 to 100. And Denkenberger 2018 models the percent of combustible material that burns that turns into soot as a log normal distribution with 2.5 th and 97.5 th percentiles equal to 1% and 4% see table 2 whose mean is 2.13%. The production of soot would ideally be determined via chemical modeling of the combustion of fuel in the conditions of a firestorm, but I do not think we have that. That's the end of the list. I concluded 21.1% is equal to 0.0621 times 3.39 of emitted soot is injected into the stratosphere, multiplying. Here's a list of bullet points. 6.21% equals 0.196 3.158 of emitted soot being injected into the stratosphere in the first 40 minutes, which is implied by the results of Reissner 2018, see Table 1 of Reissner 2019. I estimated it from the ratio between the 0.196 Tg of soot injected into the stratosphere in the first 40 minutes, and 3.158 Tg of emitted soot in the rubble case. I must note. The 0.196 Tg is referred to in Reissner 2019 as being injected above 12 km, not into the stratosphere. Nonetheless, I am assuming the stratosphere starts there, as Reissner 2018 attributes that height to the tropopause which marks the start of the stratosphere. Note that a majority of black carbon is found significantly below the tropopause, roughly 12 kilometers, and hence can be easily washed away by precipitation produced by the climate model. Interestingly, the stratosphere only starts at 16.6 kilometers according to figure 4 of Wagman 2020, eyeballing the dashed black lines. Reissner 2019 does not explicitly say the 0.196 Tg refers to the first 40 minutes, but I think it does. Reissner 2018's discussion of the fire simulation for the no-rubble case is compatible with 0.23 Tg, equals 3.69, 3.46, of soot being injected into the stratosphere in the first 40 minutes, which is quite similar to 0.236 Tg in Table 1 of Reissner 2019. The total amount of BC produced is in line with previous estimates, about 3.69 Tg from no rubble simulation. However, the majority of BC resides below the stratosphere, 3.46 Tg below 12 km, and can be readily impacted by scavenging from precipitation either via pyrocumulonimbus produced by the fire itself, not modeled, or other synoptic weather systems. Reissner 2019 only discusses the fire simulations, which only last 40 minutes. From Reissner 2018, high-grade Firetech simulations for this domain used 5,000 processors and took roughly 96H to complete for 40 minutes of simulated time. 3.39 equals 0.80.236 times as much soot being injected into the stratosphere in total as in the first 40 minutes. This respects the no-rubble case of Reissner 2018 and is the ratio between 0.8 Tg of soot injected into the stratosphere in total. The BC aerosol that remains in the atmosphere, lifted to stratospheric heights by the rising soot plumes, undergoes sedimentation over a time scale of several years, figures 8 and 9. 
This mass represents the effective amount of BC that can force climatic changes over multi-year time scales. In the forced ensemble simulations, it is about 0.8 TG after the initial rainout, whereas it is about 3.4 TG in the simulation with an initial soot distribution as in Mills et al., 2014. 0.236 TG of soot injected into the stratosphere in the first 40 minutes, in line with the last row of Table 1 of Reisner 2019. That's the end of the list. The estimate of 6.21% of emitted soot being injected into the stratosphere is derived from the rubble case of Reisner 2018, which did not produce a firestorm. However, in response to Robok 2019, Reisner 2019 run. Quote. Two simulations at higher fuel loading that are in the firestorm regime, Glastone and Dolan, 1977. The first simulation, for X no rubble, uses a fuel load around the firestorm criterion, for GUCM2, and the second simulation, constant fuel, is well above the limit, 72 GUCM2. End quote. These simulations led to a soot injected into the stratosphere in the first 40 minutes per emitted soot of 5.45%. Equals 0.461 and 6.44% equals 1.53, 23.77, which are quite similar to the 6.21% of Reisner 2018 I used above. Reisner 2019 also notes. Quote. Of note is that the constant fuel case is clearly in the firestorm regime with strong inward and upward motions of nearly 180 meters per second during the fine fuel burning phase. This simulation included no rubble, and since no greenery, trees do not produce rubble, is present, the inclusion of a rubble zone would significantly reduce BC production, and the overall atmospheric response within the circular ring of fire. End quote. This suggests a firestorm is not a sufficient condition for a high soot injected into the stratosphere per emitted soot. Toon 2008 and Toon 2019. I deducted a soot injected into the stratosphere per counter value yield of 0.00215 TG a KT, equals 945 for 40 10 carat 3, for Toon 2008 and Toon 2019. I computed it from the ratio between 945 TG, equals 1.35 times 10 cubed times 0.700, of soot injected into the stratosphere, multiplying. 1.35 KTG of emitted soot. 70% of emitted soot being injected into the stratosphere. 440 metric tons total yield, 4.4 K detonations of 100 KT. I got 1.35 KTG is equal to 180 times 7.52 of emitted soot, multiplying. Here's a list of bullet points. 180 TG of generated soot. 7.52 equals 22.1 to adjust for the available fuel per area. Emitted soot is proportional to burned area, in agreement with the second equation of Toon 2008. I estimated an available fuel per area for countervalue nuclear detonations of 22.1 GSEM carat 2. I think the results of Toon 2008 imply 0.029 for TG a kilometer carat 2. Equals 11.2 asterisk 10 carat 3 a 4.4 times 10 cubed times 86.6 of available fuel per area, that is 2.9 for GSEM carat 2, equals 0.0294 asterisk 10 carat 12, 5 by 2, given. 11.2 KTG 
equals 180.016 of fuel, which is the ratio between the above soot and 0.016 kilograms of soot per kilogram of fuel. A sort conflict with 4,400 nuclear explosions. A burned area per detonation of 86.6 km2. In our model we considered 100 KT weapons, since that is the size of many of the submarine-based weapons in the US, British, and French arsenals. In that case, we assume a burned area of 86.6 square kilometers per weapon. That's the end of the list. I concluded 70% equals 1 to 0.20, asterisk, 1 to 0.125, of emitted soot is injected into the stratosphere, in agreement with TUM 2019. This stems from on the basis of limited observations of pyrocumulus clouds, 16, Toon 2007, we assume that 20% of the BC is removed by rainfall during injection into the upper troposphere. Further smoke is rained out by the climate model before the smoke is lofted into the stratosphere by solar heating of the smoke. The fraction of the injected mass that is present in the model over 15 years is shown in figure. S5. In the first few days after the injection, 10 to 15% of the smoke is removed in the climate model before reaching the stratosphere. So I considered an additional soot removal of 12.5%, 21, equals, 0.10 plus 0.15, 2. You might have noticed that I discounted the results of Reisner 2018, to account for their overestimation of the emitted soot per burned fuel, but that I did not do that for Toon 2008. I think this is right because, right after, how much of the fuel is converted into soot, there is a reference to Turco 1990, which estimates an emitted soot per burned fuel very similar to what I assumed in the previous section, 22. Toon 2019 justifies the 20% soot removal during injection into the upper troposphere citing Toon 2000, and 7, which in turn backs it up citing Turco 1990, but I noted this does not justify the value that well. From the header of Table 2 of Turco 1990, the prompt soot removal efficiency, that is soot removal during injection into the upper troposphere, is taken to be 20%, range of 10 to 25%, which checks out, but it is mentioned that. Quote. Originally, we, too, Turco 1983, estimated that 25 to 50% of the smoke mass would be immediately scrubbed from urban fires by induced precipitation. However, based on current data, it is more reasonable to assume that, on average, less than or equal to 10 to 25% of the soot emission is likely to be removed in such a manner. End quote. Nevertheless, as far as I can tell, the current data is not discussed in Turco 1990. I would have expected to see a justification for the update, as the 20% prompt soot removal assumed in Turco 1990 is lower than the lower bound of 25%, attributed to Turco 1983. In addition, I was not able to confirm the soot removal of 25% to 50% quoted above, searching in Turco 1983 for, percent, 25%, 50%, 0.25, 0.5, and, rain. It is possible a soot removal of 25% to 50% is implied by the assumptions or results of Turco 1983, although it is not explicitly mentioned, but it looks like this might not be so. Turco 1983 appears to have used a soot removal of 20% as Turco 1990. From Table 2, 80% of the soot was assumed to be injected in the stratosphere. I did not find an explanation of this value searching for 80% and 0.8.
Brian Toon, the first author of Toon 2007, Toon 2008 and Toon 2019, and second of Turco 1983 and Turco 1990, clarified the 20% prompt sook removal in Toon 2007 was calculated from 1 minus the ratio between the concentration of smoke and carbon monoxide at the stratosphere and near natural fires. I tried to obtain the 20% with this approach, but did not have success. I assume Brian's clarification refers to the following passage of Toon 2007. Quote. According to Andre et al., 2001, in natural fires the ratio of injected smoke aerosol larger than 0.1 m to enhanced carbon monoxide concentrations is in the range 5 to 20 cm carat 3 ppb near the fires. Jost et al., 2004, found ratios roughly 7 cm carat 3 ppb in smoke plumes deep within the stratosphere over Florida that had originated a few days earlier in Canadian fires, implying that the smoke particles had not been significantly depleted during injection into the stratosphere, or subsequent transport over thousands of kilometers in the stratosphere. Such evidence is consistent with the choice of R equals 0.8 for smoke removal in pyroconvection. End quote. On the one hand, I agree with the last sentence as the quoted evidence is consistent with a smoke removal in pyroconvection between 0, 7 greater than 5, and 65%, equals 1, 7 twentieths, which encompasses 20%, equals 1 to 0.8. On the other hand, this value seems to be pessimistic. Assuming a ratio between the concentration of smoke and carbon monoxide near the fires of 12.5 cm carat 3, ppb, 21, equals, 5 plus 20, 2, R equals 56%, equals 7 or 12.5, of smoke would be injected into the upper troposphere, which suggests a prompt soot removal of 44%, equals 1 to 0.560, 2.20, equals 0.440-0.20, times as high as the value supposed in Toon 2007. I shared the above reasoning with Brian, but his best guess continues to be 20% soot removal during the injection into the upper troposphere. So I relied on that value to estimate the soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue yield at the start of this section. As a side note, Turco 1983 presents an emitted soot per yield of land near surface, and surface detonations of 1.0 asterisk 10 carat 4 and 3.3 asterisk 10 carat 4 tg, kt, see table 2, which are 3.26%, equals 1.0 times 10 to the power of negative 4 divided by 0.00307 and 10.7%, equals 3.3 times 10 to the power of negative 4 divided by 0.00307, the 0.00307 TG AKT, equals 0.00215-0.7, I inferred from Toon 2008. Brian Toon clarified the lower soot emissions in Toon, 2008 are explained by this study considering a less fuel per area owing to more detonations with larger yield which imply a larger burned area with lower population density. I think this makes sense. Considerations influencing the soot injected into the stratosphere. There are a number of considerations I have not covered influencing the soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue yield. I have little idea about their net effect, but I point out some of them below. Relatedly, feel free to check HES 2021 and the comments on Beans and Mike's post. Overestimating soot injected into the stratosphere. Besides the pessimistic assumption regarding the soot emissions per burned area, which I corrected for, Reisner 2018 says. Quote. For the vertical transport of the BC, very calm ambient winds are assumed in the model, 
so to prevent rapid dispersion of the BC in the plume. The height of burst is determined as twice the fallout-free height, so to minimize building damage and to maximize the number of ignited locations. Fire propagation in the model occurs primarily via convective heat transfer and spotting ignition due to firebrands, and the spotting ignition model employs relatively high ignition probabilities as another worst-case condition. The wind speed profile was chosen to be high enough to maintain fire spread, but low enough to keep the plume from tilting too much to prevent significant plume rise, worst case. Wind direction is set as 270 degrees, west to east, plus x direction, for all heights, with no directional shear, and a weakly stable atmosphere was used below the tropopause to assist plume rise, worst case. End quote. David thinks one does not need wind to maintain fire spread if one includes secondary ignitions, or the fireball ignites everything at once. Commented the worst case would be an unstable atmosphere, rather than a weakly stable one, like in a thunderstorm. Underestimating soot injected into the stratosphere. Secondary ignitions were neglected in Reisner 2018. Quote. The impact of secondary ignitions, such as gas line breaks, is not considered and research is still needed to determine their impact on a mass fire's intensity. For example, evidence of secondary ignitions in the Hiroshima conflagration ensuing the nuclear bombing, National Research Council, 1985, or utilization of incendiary bombs in Dresden and Hamburg, Hewitt, 1983, led to unique conditions that resulted in significantly enhanced fire behavior. End quote. David commented existing heating and cooking fires spreading is all that was required for the San Francisco earthquake firestorm. Been noted urban fires are down 50% since the 1940s and way more since 1906, when the San Francisco earthquake and firestorm happened. GPT for very much agreed urban fires are now less likely to occur. On the other hand, David commented. Urban fires have decreased mostly due to the installation of sprinkler systems, smoke detectors and reductions in smoking and the combustibility of certain materials, for example mattresses. The above would not help much to mitigate the house fires caused by nuclear detonations, which have multiple ignition points. As noted in Robot 2019, fires, and therefore soot production and elevation, were only modeled for 40 minutes. Quote. Reisner et al. stated that their fires were of surprisingly short duration, because of low wind speeds and hence minimal fire spread the fires are rapidly subsiding at 40 minutes. However, they do not show the energy release rate so that we can tell if the fuel has been consumed within 40 minutes. And their claims of low wind speed are erroneous, as they choose wind speeds higher than typically observed in Atlanta. Real-world experience with firestorms such as in Hiroshima or Hamburg during World War II or in San Francisco, after the 1906 earthquake, London, 1906, and of conflagrations, such as after the bombing of Tokyo during World War II, Caden, 1960, suggests that a 40-minute mass fire is a dramatic underestimate. Most of these fires last for many hours. A longer fire would make available more heat and buoyancy to inject soot to higher altitudes. If their fire had a short duration, and did not simply blow off their grid, it was likely due to the low fuel load assumed in their target area and combustion that did not consume all of the available fuel. End quote. Reisner 2019 replied that. Quote. Another important point concerning these simulations is that the rapid burning of the fine fuels leads to both a reduction in oxygen, 
that limits combustion and a large upward transport of heat and mass that stabilizes the upper atmosphere above and downwind of the firestorm. These dynamical and combustion processes help limit fire activity and BC production once the fine material has been consumed. Timescale less than 30 minutes. Hence, the primary time period for BC injection that could impact climate occurs during a relatively short time period compared to the entirety of the fire or the continued burning and or smoldering of thicker fuels. While the full duration is not modeled, we argue that the primary atmospheric response from a nuclear detonation is the rapid burning of the fine fuels. Thick fuels will take longer to burn but will induce less atmospheric response and produce and inject less BC to upper atmosphere. Further, during the later time period, the upper atmosphere stabilizes from the large injection of heat and mass. Firestorms such as Dresden were maintained not only by burning of thick fuels, but also by the injection of highly flammable fuel from the incendiary bombs, which we believe acted as fine fuel replacement. End quote. In any case, it still seems to me Robot 2019 might have a valid point. From the legend of figure 6 of Reisner 2018, the soot emissions in the rubble case for 40 minutes are 1.32, equals 3.16 e 2.39, times those for 20 minutes, so it is not obvious that soot emissions after 40 minutes would be negligible. From figure 7, soot continues to be injected into the stratosphere in the climate simulation, run after the fire simulation, which means soot not injected into the stratosphere in the first 40 minute can still do it afterwards. Nevertheless, I guess the initial conditions of the climate simulation, which I think are supposed to represent a random typical atmosphere, are less favorable to soot being injected into the stratosphere than the final ones of the fire simulation. If true, this would result in underestimating the injection of soot into the stratosphere. I guess these two arguments are stronger for firestorms, which were not produced in Reisner 2018. The two simulations of Reisner 2019 concern firestorms, but I would like to see. On the first point above, data on soot emissions for a longer fire simulation demonstrating they are negligible after 40 minutes. On the second, climate simulations demonstrating the soot injected into the stratosphere in total as a fraction of that in the first 40 minutes is similar to the ratio of 3.39 respecting the no rubble case of Reisner 2018. Overestimating underestimating soot injected into the stratosphere. Robot 2019 contended that. Quote. Water vapor allows for latent heat release when clouds form. Numerous studies have shown that sensible and latent heat release is essential to lofting smoke in either firestorms, for example, Penner et al., 1986, or conflagrations, Luder et al., 2006. Reisner et al. stated, a dry atmosphere was utilized, and pyrocumulus impacts or precipitation from pyrocumulonimbus were not considered. While latent heat released by condensation could lead to enhanced vertical motions of the air, increased scavenging of soot particles by precipitation is also possible. These processes will be examined in future studies using high-grad firetech. By not considering pyrocumulonimbus clouds, which by the latent heat of condensation can inject soot into the stratosphere, they have eliminated a major source of buoyancy that would loft the soot. They seem to suggest that any lofting of soot would be balanced by significant precipitation scavenging but there is no evidence for that assumption. In fact, forest fires triggered pyrocumulonimbus clouds that lofted soot into the lower stratosphere in August 2017 over British Columbia, Canada. Over the succeeding weeks, the soot was lofted many more kilometers, as observed by satellites, because it was heated by the sun. U et al., 2019.
This fire is direct evidence of the self-lofting process Roboc et al. 2007, and Mills et al. 2014, modeled before. It also shows that precipitation in the cloud still allowed massive amounts of smoke to reach the stratosphere. End quote. Reisner 2019 replied that. Quote. The latent heat release may or may not lead to enhanced smoke lofting depending on the complex microphysical and mesoscale processes. Roboc et al. 2019. Cite wildfires in extremely dry conditions that prevent precipitation formation and do not model the process. Precipitation scavenging of BC can be much higher than is currently assumed, 20%. U 2018. We and the community agree that research is needed to quantify the role latent heat plays in BC movement and washout. End quote. Meanwhile, Tarshish 2022 concluded. Quote. Direct numerical and large eddy simulations indicate that dry firestorm plumes possess temperature anomalies that are less than the requirements for stratospheric ascent by a factor of two or more. In contrast, moist firestorm plumes are shown to reach the stratosphere by tapping into the abundant latent heat present in a moist environment. Latent heating is found to be essential to plume rise, raising doubts about the applicability of past work, namely, Reisner 2018 and Reisner 2019, that neglected moisture. End quote. Nonetheless, as hinted by Reisner 2019, moisture not only helps the emitted soot reach the stratosphere, but it also contributes to it being rained out. This latter process is not modeled in Tarshish 2022. Quote. A limitation of the theory and simulations presented here is the absence of soot microphysics. Soot aerosols provide cloud condensation nuclei that may alter the drop size distribution and impact autoconversion. This aerosol effect is expected to invigorate convection, Lee et al., 2020, lofting the plume higher. Coupling soot to microphysics, however, also enables soot to rain out, which could remove much of the soot from the rising plume as suggested in Penner et al., 1986. Given the essential role of moisture in lofting firestorm plumes we identified here, future research should investigate how these second-order microphysical effects impact firestorm soot transport. Another aspect not addressed here and deserving of future study is the radiative lofting of plumes, which has been observed to substantially lift wildfire plume soot for months after the fire, U et al., 2019. End quote. Subheading. Available fuel. Available fuel for counterforce. For counterforce, I calculated an available fuel per burned area of 3.07 GCM carat 2, equals, 11 times 10 to the power of 6 times 2.06 times 10 cubed plus 8 times 10 to the power of 9, asterisk 10 carat, dash 5 asterisk 2. I got this from the first equation in box 1 of Toon, 2008. Here's a list of bullet points. The equation respects a linear regression of the fuel load, available fuel per area, on population density relying on one data point for San Jose, five for the United States, and three for Hamburg. See figure 9 of Toon 2007. The slope is 11 megagrams per person. The fuel load for null population density is 8 gg a kilometer carat 2. I used a population density of 2.06 k person a kilometer carat 2, equals 0.492 by 1.69 plus 0.675 by 2.90 plus 0.921 by 2.21, plus 0.492 by 2.02 plus 0.860 by 1.47, forward slash, 0.492 plus 0.675 plus 0.921. 
plus 0.492 plus 0.860, asterisk 10 carat 3. This is a weighted mean with weights proportional to the counterforce nuclear detonations in each of five countries as a fraction of total. I guess the vast majority of offensive nuclear detonations will be launched by these countries. I obtained the weights supposing the offensive nuclear detonations by each country is the same, and using Metaculous Median Community predictions on 30 August, 2023 for the fraction of countervalue offensive nuclear detonations before 2050 by these countries. I got the following weights. 49.2% equals 1 to 0.0154, 2, for China, considering it is targeted by half of the countervalue nuclear detonations by the United States. 67.5% equals 1 to 0.325, for India, considering it is targeted by all of the countervalue nuclear detonations by Pakistan. 92.1% equals 1 to 0.079, for Pakistan, considering it is targeted by all of the countervalue nuclear detonations by India. 49.2% equals 1 to 0.0154, 2, for Russia considering it is targeted by half of the countervalue nuclear detonations by the United States. 86% equals 1 to 0.118-0.0218 for the United States, considering it is targeted by all of the countervalue nuclear detonations by China and Russia. The following urban population densities. 4. China, 1.69k person kilometer carat 2, equals 883 asterisk 10 carat 6, 522 asterisk 10 carat 3, respecting an urban population in 2021 of 883m, and an urban land area in 2015 of 522k kilometer carat 2. India, 2.90k person kilometer carat 2, equals for 98 asterisk 10 carat 6, 172 asterisk 10 carat 3, respecting an urban population in 2021 of 498m and an urban land area in 2015 of 172 k km carat 2. Pakistan, 2.21 k person km carat 2, equals 86.6 asterisk 10 carat 6, 39.1 asterisk 10 carat 3, respecting an urban population in 2021 of 86.6 m, and an urban land area in 2015 of 39.1 k km carat 2. Russia, 2.02 k person km carat 2, equals 107 asterisk 10 carat 6, 52.9 asterisk 10 carat 3, respecting an urban population in 2021 of 107 m, and an urban land area in 2015 of 52.9 k kilometer carat 2. The United States, 1.47 k person kilometer carat 2, equals 275 asterisk 10 carat 6, 187 asterisk 10 carat 3, respecting an urban population in 2021 of 275 m, and an urban land area in 2015 of 187 k km carat 2. Relying on the urban population density presupposes the burned area by counterforce nuclear detonations is uniformly distributed across urban land area, which I guess makes sense a priori. That's the end of the list. Available fuel for countervalue. For countervalue, I considered an available fuel per burned area of 21.1 GSEM carat 2, equals, 0.00770 by 34.6 plus 0.325 by 27.9, plus 0.079 by 13.9 plus 0.00770 by 13.0.
plus 0.140 by 8.95, forward slash, 0.00770 plus 0.325 plus 0.079 plus 0.0770 plus 0.140. This is a weighted mean with. Here's a list of bullet points. Weights proportional to the countervalue nuclear detonations in each of the aforementioned five countries as a fraction of total. Once again, I obtained the weight supposing the offensive nuclear detonations by each country is the same, and using Metaculous Median Community predictions on 30 August, 2023 for the fraction of countervalue offensive nuclear detonations before 2050 by these countries. I got the following weights. 0.770% equals 0.01542 for China, considering it is targeted by half of the countervalue nuclear detonations by the United States. 32.5% for India, considering it is targeted by all of the countervalue nuclear detonations by Pakistan. 7.9% for Pakistan, considering it is targeted by all of the countervalue nuclear detonations by India. 0.750% equals 0.01542 for Russia, considering it is targeted by half of the countervalue nuclear detonations by the United States. 14% equals 0.118 plus 0.0218 for the United States, considering it is targeted by all of the countervalue nuclear detonations by China and Russia. Available fuel per burned area adjusting the values in Table 13 of TUN 2007 for population density and burned area. TUN 2007 used population density data from 2003 but it has generally been increasing due to population growth and urbanization, thus increasing fuel load. So I multiplied the values in table 13 by the ratio between the fuel loads computed with the first equation in box 1 of TUN 2008, see previous section, for urban population densities. In 2023, numerator, given by the ones I determined in the previous section. In 2003, denominator, dividing urban population in 2003 by urban land area in 2004. China, 1.78 k person kilometer carat 2, equals 776 asterisk 10 carat 6, for 37 asterisk 10 carat 3, respecting an urban population of 776 m, and an urban land area of 437 k kilometer carat 2. India, 2.53 k person kilometer carat 2, equals 319 asterisk 10 carat 6, 126 asterisk 10 carat 3, respecting an urban population of 319 m, and an urban land area of 126 k kilometer carat 2. Pakistan, 3.06 k person kilometer carat 2, equals 56.0 asterisk 10 carat 6, 18.3 asterisk 10 carat 3, respecting an urban population of 56.0 m, and an urban land area of 18.3 k kilometer carat 2. Russia, 2.00 k person kilometer carat 2, equals 106 asterisk 10 carat 6, 52.9 asterisk 10 carat 3, respecting an urban population of 106 m, and an urban land area of 52.9 k kilometer carat 2. The United States, 1.39 k person kilometer carat 2, equals 231 asterisk 10 carat 6, 166 asterisk 10 carat 3, respecting an urban population of 231 m, and an urban land area of 166 k kilometer carat 2.
In addition, Toon 2007 refers to a yield per detonation of 15 kT, and burned area of 13 km2, whose radius, is a formula, is 2.03 km, equals, the 13th of March, 14, carat 0.5. I assumed burned area is proportional to yield, so it is 164 km carat 2, equals 13 asterisk 189 15, for my yield of 189 kT, and the respective radius is 7.23 km, equals 164 3.14, Since population density decreases as distance to the city center increases, the fuel load has to be adjusted downwards. As I believe is usually the case in urban economics, I presumed population density, rho, decreases exponentially with the distance to the city center, here's a formula, according to a certain density gradient, lambda, such that, here's a formula, where, here's a formula, is the population density at the city center. Consequently, the population density in a circle of radius, here's a formula, centered at the city center equals, here's a formula, I set the density gradient to 0.1 which is the mean of those of the 47 cities analyzed in Bertord 2003, see pages 96 and 97 of the PDF. As a result, the population densities for the smaller and larger radii of 2.03, and 7.23 kilometers are 0.874, equals 2 or 0.1, 2.03 carat 2 asterisk, 1 or 0.1, e carat, dash 0.1 asterisk 2.03, asterisk, 2.03 plus 1 or 0.1, and 0.627, equals 2 or 0.1, 7.23 carat 2 asterisk, 1 or 0.1, e carat, dash 0.1 asterisk 7.23, asterisk, 7.23 plus 1 or 0.1, times that at the city center. So I also multiplied the values in table 13 by 0.717, equals 0.627, 0.874, I ended up with the following fuel loads. 34.6 GUCM carat 2 is equal to 50 times 0.964 times 0.717. For China, updating the original 50 GUCM carat 2 by a factor of 0.964 equals 11 by 1.69 plus 8 forward slash 11 by 1.78 plus 8 to account for population growth and urbanization and 0.717 to correct for different burned area. 27.9 GUCM carat 2 is equal to 35 times 1.11 times 0.717. For India, updating the original 35 GUCM carat 2 by factors of 1.11 equals 11 by 2.90 plus 8 forward slash 11 by 2.53 plus 8 and 0.717. 13.9 GUCM carat 2 is equal to 25 times 0.776 times 0.717, for Pakistan, updating the original 25 GUCM carat 2 by factors of 0.776, equals, 11 by 2.21 plus 8, forward slash, 11 by 3.06 plus 8, and 0.717. 13.0 GUCM carat 2, is equal to 18 times 1.01 times 0.717. For Russia, updating the original 18 GUCM carat 2 by factors of 1.01, equals, 11 by 2.02 plus 8, forward slash, 11 by 2.00 plus 8, and 0.717. 8.95 GUCM carat 2, is equal to 12 times 1.04 times 0.717. For the United States, updating the original 12 GUCM carat 2 by factors of 1.04, equals, 
11 by 1.47 plus 8, forward slash, 11 by 1.39 plus 8, and 0.717. That's the end of the list. For context, my available fuel per area for countervalue nuclear detonations is 1.32 equals the 21st of January, 16, times the 16 GCM carat 2 used in the base case simulations of Wagman 2020. 7.18 equals 21.102.94 times the 2.94 G CM carat 2 I think is implied by Tune 2008. 20.1 equals 21.101.05 and 16.1 equals 21.1. 1.31 times the 1.05 and 1.31 G CM carat 2 related to the rubble and non-rubble cases of Reisner 2018, see Table 1 of Reisner 2019. Subheading. Famine deaths due to the climatic effects. I expect 392m deaths, equals 0.0443 times 8.86 times 10 to the power of 9, following a nuclear war which resulted in 22.1 tg of soot being injected into the stratosphere. I found this multiplying. For 0.43% famine death rate due to the climatic effects. 8.86g people. I explain these estimates in the next sections. Subheading. Famine death rate due to the climatic effects. Defining large nuclear war. I agree with Christian that deaths in a nuclear war increase superlinearly with offensive nuclear detonations. As Louisa, I guess famine deaths due to the climatic effects increase logistically with soot injected into the stratosphere. For simplicity, I approximate the logistic function as being null for low levels of soot. Increasing linearly for high levels of soot. The minimum offensive nuclear detonations based on which I define a large nuclear war marks the end of the first region above, and start of the second. From figure 5b of Shear 2022, for the case in which there is no international food trade, all livestock grain is fed to humans, and there is no food waste, top line. Adjusted to include international food trade dividing by 94.8% food support for no international food trade, nor climatic effects, there are no deaths for 10.5 tg. I guess the societal response will have an effect equivalent to assuming international food trade, all livestock grain being fed to humans, and no food waste, see next section. So I suppose the famine deaths, due to the climatic effects are negligible up to the climate change induced by 10.5 tg of soot being injected into the Stratosphere in Shear 2022. I believe Shear 2022 overestimates the duration of the climatic effects, so I considered the linear part of the logistic function starts at 11.3 tg, instead of 10.5 tg. Here's a list of bullet points. My estimate is that the e-folding time of stratospheric soot is 4.72 years, equals, 2 asterisk, 1.4 plus 2.3, 2 plus 6 plus 6.5 plus, 4.0 plus 4.6, 2 plus, 8.4 plus 8.7, 2 plus 4, forward slash, 2 plus 5. This is a weighted mean of the estimates provided in Table 3 of Wagman 2020 for six different climate models, 21, and a stratospheric soot injection of 5 tg. For the cases in which an interval was provided, I used the mean between the lower and upper bound, 21. I attributed two times as much weight to the EAMV1 model introduced in that study as to each of the other models, because it sounds like it should be expected to be more accurate. In this study, the global climate forcing and response is predicted by combining two atmospheric models, 
which together span the microscale to global scale processes involved. In Shear 2022, the atmospheric model is the whole atmosphere community climate model version. 4. WACCM4, whose e-folding time is 8.55 years, 21, equals 8.4 plus 8.7. 2. According to Table 3 of Wagman 2020. If stratospheric soot decays exponentially with an e-folding time, T subscript T, the mean stratospheric soot over a time, is a formula. As a fraction of the initial soot, S subscript 0, is, is a formula. In Shear 2022, in all the simulations, the soot is arbitrarily injected during the week starting on May 15th of year 1, and 2010 is the baseline year. So the time from this week until the end of year 2 is t equals 1.62 years, equals 7.5 plus 12, 12. For the e-folding time of Shear 2022 of 8.55 years, the mean stratospheric soot over the above time, as a fraction of the initial stratospheric soot, is 91.1%, equals 8.55, 1.62 asterisk, 1, e carat, dash 1.62, 8.55. So an initial stratospheric soot of 10.5, TG results in a mean stratospheric soot over the above time of 9.57 TG is equal to 0.911 times 10.5. For my e-folding time of 4.72 years, the mean stratospheric soot over the above time, as a fraction of the initial stratospheric soot, is 84.6%, equals 4.72, 1.62 asterisk, 1, e carat, dash 1.62 of 4.72. So 11.3 tg, equals 9.57 or 0.846 of soot have to be injected into the stratosphere to induce the climate change associated with 10.6 TG in Shear 20. 22. That's the end of the list. The similarity between the soot injections just above means the shorter climatic effects end up having a minor difference. What matters is the severity of the worst initial years, and my e-folding time is still sufficiently long for these to be roughly as bad. I estimated 0.0491 TG of soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue nuclear detonation, so I expect an injection of 11.3 TG requires 230, equals 11.3, 0.0491, countervalue nuclear detonations. Since I only expect 21.5% of offensive nuclear detonations to be countervalue, I defined a large nuclear war as having at least 1.07 K, equals 230 or 0.215 offensive nuclear detonations, and assume no famine deaths due to the climatic effects for less than that. David thinks having famine deaths due to the climatic effects starting to increase linearly, after an injection of soot into the stratosphere of 0 TG is much more accurate than after 11.3 TG, because there is already significant famine now. The deaths from nutritional deficiencies and protein energy malnutrition were 252k and 212k in 2019, and I suspect the real death toll is about one order of magnitude higher. Nevertheless, I am not trying to estimate all famine deaths. I am only attempting to arrive at the famine deaths due to the climatic effects, not those resulting directly or indirectly from infrastructure destruction. I expect this will cause substantial disruptions to international food trade. As Matt Boyd commented. Quote. Much of the catastrophic risk from nuclear war may be in the more than likely catastrophic trade disruptions, which alone could lead to famines, given that nearly two-thirds of countries are net food importers, and almost no one makes their own liquid fuel to run their agricultural equipment. End quote. Relatedly, from Shear 2022. Quote. 
Impacts in warring nations are likely to be dominated by local problems, such as infrastructure destruction, radioactive contamination, and supply chain disruptions. So the results here apply only to indirect effects from soot injection in remote locations. End quote. Famine death rate due to the climatic effects of large nuclear war. I would say the famine death rate due to the climatic effects of a large nuclear war would be 4.43% equals 1. 0.993 plus 0.902 to 0.993 forward slash 24.6 to 14.6 asterisk 14.5 to 14.6. I calculated this. Here's a list of bullet points. For 22.1 TG of soot injected into the stratosphere, that is a mean of 18.7 TG, is equal to 0.8 for 6 times 22.1 until the end of year 2. Supposing the famine death rate due to the climatic effects equals 1 minus the fraction of people with food support, 1,911 kilocalories per person per day, which is plotted in figure 5b of Shear 2022. Getting the fraction of people with food support linearly interpolating between the scenarios of figure 5b of Shear 2022, in which there is no international food trade, all livestock grain is fed to humans, and there is no food waste, top line adjusted to include international food trade dividing by 94.8% food support for no international food trade, nor climatic effects, 39. 99.3% equals 0.941 or 0.948, for an injection of soot into the stratosphere of 16 Tg, which corresponds to a mean of 14.6 Tg, is equal to 0.911 times 16, until the end of year 2. 90.2% equals 0.855-0.948, for an injection of soot into the stratosphere of 27 Tg, which corresponds to a mean of 24.6 Tg, is equal to 0.911 times 27, until the end of year 2. That's the end of the list. Some reasons why my famine death rate due to the climatic effects may be too. Here's a list of bullet points. Low. There would be disruptions to international food trade. I only assumed it would not in order to compensate for other factors, and because I guess it would mostly be a direct or indirect consequence of infrastructure destruction, not the climatic effects I am interested in. Shia 2022 assumes there is no disruption of national trade, nor of international non-food trade. This includes important inputs to agriculture, such as agricultural machinery, fertilizers, fuel, pesticides, and seeds. Not all livestock grain would be fed to humans. I only assumed it would in order to compensate for other factors. There would be some food waste. I only assumed it would not in order to compensate for other factors. Some food would go to people who would die. I assumed it would not, by getting the famine death rate due to the climatic effects from 1 minus the fraction of people with food support, for simplicity, and in order to compensate for other factors. Lower consumption of healthy food. While this, Shear 2022's, analysis focuses on calories, humans would also need proteins and micronutrients to survive the ensuing years of food deficiency. We estimate the impact on protein supply in supplementary figure 3. On this topic, you can check FAM 2022. Hi. Foreign aid to the more affected countries, including international food assistance. Increase in meat production per capita from 2010, which is the reference year in Shear 2022, to 2037. Increase in real GDP per capita from 2010 to 2037, see graph below.
in Shia 2022. Scenarios assume that all stored food is consumed in year one, that is no rationing. We do not consider farm management adaptations such as changes in cultivar selection, switching to more cold-tolerating crops or greenhouses 31 and alternative food sources such as mushrooms, seaweed, methane single-cell protein, insects 32, hydrogen single-cell protein 33 and cellulosic sugar 34. Large-scale use of alternative foods, requiring little to no light to grow in a cold environment 38, has not been considered but could be a life-saving source of emergency food if such production systems were operational. Byproducts of biofuel have been added to livestock feed and waste 27. Therefore, we add only the calories from the final product of biofuel in our calculations. However, it would have been better to redirect to humans the crops used to produce biofuels. The minimum calorie supply is 1,911 kilocalories per person per day. In reality, lower values are possible with apparently tiny famine death rate due to the climatic effects from malnutrition. The calorie supply in the Central African Republic, CAR, in 2015 was 1,729 kilocalories per person per day. The disease burden from nutritional deficiencies in that year was 143 kdaly which corresponds to 2.80k deaths, equals 143 times 10 cubed divided by 51, based on the 51 dahlia life implied by Givewell's moral weights. The above number of deaths amounts to 0.0581%, equals 2.80 asterisk 10 carat 3, for 0.82 asterisk 10 carat 6, of cars population in 2015. Lower consumption of unhealthy food. That's the end of the list. I stipulate the above roughly cancel out, although I am not so confident. I think high-income countries without significant infrastructure destruction would respond particularly well. Historically, famines have only affected countries with low real GDP per capita. There's an image here in the text. On the topic of lower consumption of healthy and unhealthy food, Alexander 2023 studies the effect of energy and export restrictions on deaths due to changes in red meat fruits and vegetables consumption, and the fraction of the population who is underweight, overweight and obese. Lower red meat consumption, and less people being overweight and obese decreases deaths. Lower consumption of fruits and vegetables, and more people being underweight increases deaths. The results of the study are below. There's an image here in the text. The figure suggests the net effect corresponds to an increase in deaths. I am confident this would be the case for sub-Saharan Africa, but not so much for other regions. The fraction of calories coming from animals increases with GDP per capita, so cheaper diets have a lower fraction of calories coming from meat, and the relative reduction in meat consumption would be higher than that in fruits and vegetables. I think Alexander 2023 takes this into account. Quote. As prices increase, the model represents a consumption shift away from luxury goods such as meat, fruit, and vegetables back towards staple crops, as well as lower consumption overall. End quote. Alexander 2023 still concludes higher prices would lead to more deaths, but I wonder whether rationing efforts would ensure sufficient consumption of fruits and vegetables. I sense the deaths owing to decreased consumption of fruits and vegetables are overestimated in the figure above, but I have barely looked into the question. Subheading. Population. I considered a global population of 8.86g, equals, 8.61 plus, 9.59 to 8.61, forward slash, 2052 to 2032, asterisk, 
2037-2032, asterisk 10 carat 9. For 2037, equals, 2024 plus 2050, 2, which is midway from now until 2050. Linearly interpolating between Metaculous Median Community Predictions on the 3rd of September, 2023-4. 2032-8.61G. 2052-9.59G. Subheading. Uncertainty. To obtain a distribution for the famine death rate due to the climatic effects of a large nuclear war, without running a Monte Carlo simulation. I assumed a beta distribution with a ratio between the 95th and 5th percentiles equal to 702, equals e carat, ln, 3.70, carat 2 plus ln, 4.39, carat 2 plus ln, 68.3, carat 2 plus ln, 100, carat 2, carat 0.5. This is the result of supposing the following follow independent log normal distributions with ratios between the 95th and 5th percentile equal to. Here's a list of bullet points. 3.70 equals 4.11 asterisk 10 carat 3 or 1.11 asterisk 10 carat 3, which is the ratio between my 95th and 5th percentile offensive nuclear detonations for a large nuclear war. 4.39 equals 290 or 66.1, which is the ratio between the maximum and minimum mean yield of the United States nuclear warheads in 2023 for a large nuclear war. 68.3, equals 0.00215, asterisk 10 carat, minus 5, which is the ratio between the soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue yield I inferred for, not directly retrieved from, Reisner 2018 and Reisner 2019, and Toon 2007 and Toon 2008. 100, which is my out-of-thin-air guess for the ratio between the 95th and 5th percentile famine death rate due to the climatic effects for an actual, not expected, injection of soot into the stratosphere of 22.1 Tg. A key contributing factor to such a high ratio is uncertainty in societal response. If I change the ratio to 10, 10% as large, the overall ratio would become 181, that is 25.8%, equals 181 as 702, as large. 1K, 10 times as large, the overall ratio would become 4.16K, that is 5.93, equals 4.16 times 10 cubed divided by 702, times as large. That's the end of the list. Simpler approaches to determine the ratio would lead to significantly different results. The maximum of the above ratios is 14.2%, equals 10702, of my ratio. Using the maximum would only be fine if the factors were more like normal distributions. The product of the above ratios is 158, equals 3.70 asterisk 4.39 asterisk 68.3 asterisk 10702, times as large as mine. Using this product would only be correct if all the factors were perfectly correlated. Ideally, I would have run a Monte Carlo simulation with my best guess distributions, instead of assuming just log normals. Regardless, I would have used independent distributions for simplicity, so the results would arguably be similar. For an expected famine death rate due to the climatic effects of 4.43%, a beta distribution with 95th percentile 702 times the 5th percentile has alpha and beta parameters, equal to 0.522 and 11.3. The respective CDF is below. The horizontal axis is the famine death rate due to the climatic effects 
and the vertical one the probability of less than a certain death rate. The 5th and 95th percentile famine death rate due to the climatic effects are 0.0233% and 16.4%, which correspond to 2.06m, equals 2.33 times 10 to the power of negative 4 times 8.86 times 10 to the power of 9, and 1.45g, equals 0.164 times 8.86 times 10 to the power of 9, deaths given at least one offensive nuclear detonation before 2050. There's an image here, with the caption. CDF of the famine death rate due to the climatic effects given at least one offensive nuclear detonation before 2050, given my 3.3% probability of a large nuclear war before 2050, there is a 96.7%, equals 1 to 0.0330 chance of negligible famine deaths due to the climatic effects before then, thus my 5th percentile deaths before 2050 are 0, 0 0.05 less than 0.967. My 95th percentile respects the 84.4th percentile, equals 1, 1 to 0 0.95, 0 0.32, famine death rate due to the climatic effects given at least one offensive nuclear detonation before 2050, which is 9.06%, equivalent to 803m equals 0.0906 times 8.86 times 10 to the power of 9, deaths. Summarizing, since there are 26 years, equals 2050, 2024, before 2050, my best guess for the annual famine deaths due to the climatic effects of nuclear war before then is 496k, equals 12.9 times 10 to the power of 6 divided by 26, and my 5th and 95th percentile are 0 and 30.9m equals 803 times 10 to the power of 6 divided by 26. My 95th percentile is 62.3, equals 30.9 asterisk 10 carat 6, for 96 asterisk 10 carat 3, times my best guess, which means there is lots of uncertainty. For context, my best guess for the famine deaths, due to the climatic effects is similar to the 415k caused by homicides in 2019 and my 95th percentile identical to the 28.6m, equals, 18.56 plus 10.08, asterisk 10 carat 6, caused by cardiovascular diseases and cancers in 2019. Bear in mind my estimates only refer to the famine deaths due to the climatic effects. I exclude famine deaths resulting directly or indirectly from infrastructure destruction and heat mortality. Heading. Cost-effectiveness of activities related to resilient food solutions. I calculated the expected cost-effectiveness of activities related to resilient food solutions, at decreasing famine deaths due to the climatic effects of nuclear war, from the ratio between. Here's a list of bullet points. Expected lives saved, given by multiplying. Effectiveness, the relative decrease in deaths. Horizon of effectiveness, the time during which the above applies. Age adjustment factor, the ratio between the years of healthy life which the mean person saved would live, and the 51 dali, life implied by Givewell's moral weights, 44. Annual famine deaths due to the climatic effects of nuclear war before 2050, 496k. Reciprocal of the expected reciprocal of the cost. That's the end of the list. I arrived at the following values. For planning, 0.0341 life a dollar, equals 0.0338 asterisk 11.3 asterisk 0.825 asterisk for 96 asterisk 10 carat 3, a 4.59 asterisk 10 carat 6, that is $29.30 per life, equals 1 a 0.0341. 
For research, 0.0321 life a dollar equals 0.113 asterisk 22.5 asterisk 0.825 asterisk for 96 asterisk 10 carat 3, 32.4 asterisk 10 carat 6. That is $31.20 per life, equals 1 a 0.0321. For planning, research and development, 0.0349 life a dollar, equals 0.263 asterisk 22.5 asterisk 0.825 asterisk for 96 asterisk 10 carat 3, a 69.4 asterisk 10 carat 6. That is $28.70 per life, equals 1 a 0.0349. For planning, research, development and training, 1.04 asterisk 10 carat dash for life a dollar, equals, 0.500 by 10 plus 0.263 by 12.5, asterisk 0.825 asterisk for 96 asterisk 10 carat 3, 32.5 asterisk 10 carat 9, that is 9.62,000 dollars per life, equals 1, 1.04 asterisk 10 carat dash 4. The effectiveness, horizon of effectiveness, age adjustment factor, and cost are defined below. Decreasing famine deaths due to the climatic effects would arguably shorten the recovery period, thus increasing cumulative economic output. I have not analyzed this indirect effect, hence underestimating cost-effectiveness, for consistency with near-termist cost-effectiveness analyses. These typically focus on the benefits to the people who were saved, not on how they change economic growth via their children. Subheading. Effectiveness. Based on Denkenberger 2016, I set the effectiveness to. Here's a list of bullet points. For planning, 3.38% equals 0.0376, 0.00376. This is the difference between the means of log normal distributions with 2.5 th and 97.5 th percentile equal to 1% and 10%. A log normal distribution is assumed with a 95% credible interval of 1 to 10% chance of feeding everyone, who would otherwise starve, with alternate foods in this case. 0.1% and 1%. A log normal probability distribution is assumed with a 95% credible interval of 0.1 to 1% chance of alternate foods working as planned with current preparation. For research, 11.3%. This is the mean of a log normal distribution with 2.5 th and 97.5 th percentile equal to 3% and 30%. A log normal distribution with a 95% credible interval of 3 to 30% chance of feeding everyone with alternate foods is assumed with both a plan and experiments. For planning, research and development, 26.3%. This is the mean of a log normal distribution with 2.5 th and 97.5 th percentile equal to 7% and 70%. A log normal distribution is assumed with a 95% credible interval of 7 to 70% chance of feeding everyone with alternate foods with a plan, research, and development approach. For planning, research, development, and training, 50% equals 2, 2 plus 2. This is the mean of a beta distribution with alpha and beta parameters of 2. A beta distribution, to avoid truncation, is assumed with a 95% credible interval of 9 to 90% chance of feeding everyone with alternate foods with a plan, research, development, and training. Beta parameters. X equals 2, Y equals 2, minimum equals 0, maximum equals 1. That's the end of the list. 
Denkenberger 2016 truncates the difference between the two log normal of the first bullet, and those of the second and third at 1%, and David thinks at 100% too. For simplicity, I use the means of non-truncated log normals, but I do not think this matters. Subheading. Horizon of effectiveness. Based on Denkenberger 2016, I assume the horizon of effectiveness to be. Here's a list of bullet points. For planning, 11.3 years. This is the mean of a log normal distribution with 2.5 th, and 97.5 th percentile equal to 3 and 30 years. The time horizon of the effectiveness of the plan is assumed to be log normally distributed and have a 95% credible interval of 3 to 30 years. For research, 22.5 years. This is the mean of a log normal distribution with 2.5 th, and 97.5 th percentile equal to 6 and 60 years. Research is generally longer lived than planning, so the time horizon of the effectiveness of the plan, actually, research, is estimated to be log normally distributed and have a 95% credible interval of 6 to 60 years. For planning, research and development, 22.5 years, like for research. The same time horizon is used as for research. For planning, research, development and training. 10 years for all together. In this case, it is assumed that the training is over a specific period of 10 years. 12.5 years, equals 22.5, 10, for the 1st of March together, which is the difference between the effectiveness horizons of the 1st of March and training. That's the end of the list. Subheading. Age adjustment factor. I estimated an age adjustment factor of 82.5%, equals 42.1 or 51. I got 42.1 years, is equal to 48.4 times 0.869, of healthy life which the mean person saved would leave from the product between. Here's a list of bullet points. 48.4 years, equals 81.8, 33.4, of life which the median person saved would live. I determined this from the difference between. 81.8 years, equals 75.6 plus, 78.4 to 75.6, forward slash. 15 to 0, asterisk, 33.4 to 0, of life expectancy at the median age in 2037. I got this. Considering the 33.4 years old median age projected for 2037. Linearly extrapolating the life expectancy in 2037 of. At birth, 75.6 years. At 15 years old, 78.4 years. 33.4 years old median age projected for 2037. 86.9% equals 0.8737 plus 0.8709 to 0.8737 forward slash 2016 to 1990 asterisk 2037 to 1990 healthy life expectancy at birth. I computed this for 2037. Linearly extrapolating the healthy life expectancy at birth as a fraction of the life expectancy at birth of. In 1990, 87.37%. In 2016, 87.09%. That's the end of the list. For simplicity, I am. Stipulating the age distribution of the people who die is the same as the age distribution of the global population in 2037. In reality, I expect there will be more deaths in low-income countries. People are younger there, but so is life expectancy.
neglecting changes in life expectancy resulting from the nuclear war. If this decreases, I would be overestimating cost-effectiveness. Subheading. Cost. Based on Denkenberger 2016, I determined the reciprocal of the expected reciprocal of the cost to be. Here's a list of bullet points. For planning, $4.59 million equals 1.22, 0.266-10-6. In the calculation here, the numerator is the ratio between the value of $1 in 2016 and 2022, and the denominator is the mean of a log-normal distribution with 2.5th and 97.5th percentile equal, to 1 30th and 1 m$1. The cost of the plan is assumed to be log-normally distributed and have a 95% credible interval of 1 million U.S. dollars to 30 million U.S. dollars. For research, $32.4 million equals 1.22.0.0376-10-6. The denominator is the mean of a log-normal distribution with 2.5th and 97.5th percentile equal to 1 or 101 m$1. It is assumed that the cost of the research is log-normally distributed and has a 95% credible interval of 10 million US dollars to 100 million US dollars. For planning, research and development, 69.4 million dollars equals 4.59 plus 2 by 32.4 asterisk 10 carat 6. 4.59 million dollars for planning, see above. 32.4 million dollars for research, see above. $32.4 million for development, like for research. The cost of the development is assumed to be log-normally distributed and has a 95% credible interval of 10 million US dollars to 100 million US dollars, the same as for research. For planning, research, development and training, 32 Guyanese dollars and 50 cents, equals 69.4 times 10 to the power of negative 3 plus 32.4, asterisk 10 carat 9. $69.4 million for planning, research and development, see above. 32 Guyanese dollars and 40 cents, equals 1.22, 0.0376-10-9, for training. The denominator is the mean of a log-normal distribution with 2.5th and 97.5th percentile equal, to 1 or 101 g$1. The cost of the training is assumed to be log-normally distributed and has a 95% credible interval of 10 billion US dollars to 100 billion US dollars. That's the end of the list. Heading. Results. The results are summarized in the tables below. Subheading. Probability of nuclear war. There's a table here in the text. Subheading. Soot injected into the stratosphere. There's a table here in the text. Subheading. Famine deaths due to the climatic effects. There's a table here in the text. Subheading. Cost-effectiveness of activities related to resilient food solutions. There's a table here in the text. Heading. Discussion. Subheading. Two views on soot injected into the stratosphere. My best guess for the soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue yield is 2.60 asterisk 10 carat dash for TGAKT. I obtained this giving the same weight to results I inferred from Reisner's and Toon's views, but they differ by a factor of 68.3. The 3.15 asterisk 10 carat dash 5 TG, K 
KT I deduced from Reisner 2018 and Reisner 2019 is 12.1%. Equals 3.15 asterisk 10 carat dash 5 2.60 asterisk 10 carat dash 4 of my best guess. The 0.00215 TG. KT I deduced from Tune 2007 and Tune 2008 is 8.27. Equals 0 0.00215, 2.60 10^-4, times my best guess. Consequently, if I attributed all weight to the result I deduced from Reisner's, Tune's, view, my estimates for the expected mortality would become 0.121, times as large. In other words, my best guess is hundreds of millions of famine deaths due to the climatic effects, but tens of millions putting all weight in the result I deduced from Reisner's view, and billions putting all weight in the one I deduced from Toon's view. Further research would be helpful to figure out which view should be weighted more heavily. Subheading. Shear 2022. I calculated 392m famine deaths due to the climatic effects of a large nuclear war for an injection of soot into the stratosphere of 22.1 TG, that is 17.7 m a TG, equals 392 times 10 to the power of 6 divided by 22.1. A total yield of 395 metric tons, equals 2.09 times 10 cubed times 189 times 10 cubed, that is 0.992 m, mt, equals 392 times 10 to the power of 6 divided by 395. The results of Table 1 of Shear 2022, which are in the table below, imply. For my injection of soot into the stratosphere, by linear interpolation, 1.21 g, equals, 0.926 plus, 1.43 to 0.926, forward slash, 27 to 16, asterisk, 22.1 to 16, asterisk 10 carat 9, people without food at the end of year 2, that is 54.8 mtg, equals 1.21 times 10 to the power of 9 divided by 22.1. For my total yield, by linear extrapolation, 5.01 g, equals, 2.51 plus, 5.34 to 2.51, forward slash, 440 to 50.0, asterisk, 395 to 50.0, asterisk 10 carat 9, people without food at the end of year 2, that is 12.7 mmt equals 5.01 times 10 to the power of 9 divided by 395. There's a table here in the text. So my famine deaths due to the climatic effects of a large nuclear war of 17.7 mtg, per soot injected into the stratosphere, and 0.992 mmt, per total yield, are 32.3%, equals 17.7 of 54.8, and 7.81%, equals 0.992. 12.7, those of Shear 2022, which I therefore deem too pessimistic. Subheading. Louise's analyses. I have updated one parameter of Louise's nuclear winter guesstimate model to make its results more comparable with mine. Whereas it considers a world population, excluding Australia and New Zealand, of 7.5 g, I have used 8.83 g, equals 8.86 asterisk 10 carat 9 asterisk. 1 to 0.00391. I computed this from the product between my estimate for the global population of 8.86 g 1 minus 0.391% equals 26.0 plus 5.12 forward slash 7.95 asterisk 10 carat 3, which was the population of Australia and New Zealand in 2022 as a fraction of the global one. 
This factor is roughly 1, but it matters because Louisa obtains population losses close to 100% in her worst-case scenarios. The 5K ordered samples are here, and have a mean of 6.69 G deaths. Louisa estimated an annual probability of 0.38% for a nuclear war between the United States and Russia, that is 9.42%, equals 1, 1 to 0.0038, carat, 2050 to 2024, before 2050. Louisa does not explicitly define nuclear war, but my interpretation of the post is that it means at least one offensive nuclear detonation, which Louisa confirmed. Similarly, I take Louisa's nuclear winter post to be conditional on at least one offensive nuclear detonation in the United States or Russia, which Louisa also confirmed. As a consequence, Louisa's expected deaths before 2050 would be 630m, equals 6.69 times 10 to the power of 9 times 0.0942, accounting for nuclear wars between the United States and Russia, and arguably significantly more if others are included. My estimate of 12.9 m deaths is 2.05%, equals 12.9 asterisk 10 carat 6, 630 asterisk 10 carat 6, of Louisa's, so I would say her results are significantly pessimistic. I end up agreeing with Louisa that. Quote. If we discounted the expected harm caused by US-Russia nuclear war for the fact that the nuclear winter hypothesis is somewhat suspect, the expected harm could shrink substantially. End quote. I am also surprised by Louisa's distribution for the famine death rate due to the climatic effects. Her 5th and 95th percentile are 41% and 99.6%, which I think are too close and high. According to my distribution, the probability of the famine death rate due to the climatic effects being at least 41% given one offensive nuclear detonation before 2050 is 0.00718%. The probability is actually higher due to model uncertainty. In any case, Louise's 5% chance of a population loss greater than 41%, conditional on one offensive nuclear detonation in the United States or Russia, does seem off. So much so that it prompted me to recheck her guesstimate model. There's an image here in the text. The 5th percentile death rate is 41.1%, equals 3.638.83, which checks out. I guess this super-pessimistic result has gone unnoticed because people think US-Russia nuclear exchange refers to thousands of detonations, but it is only supposed to refer to at least one. Subheading. Michael's analysis. Mike says that. Quote. If firestorms do occur in any serious numbers, for example in half of cases as with the historical atomic bombings, a nuclear winter is still a real threat. Even assuming lower fuel loads and combustion, you might get 3 degrees centigrade cooling from 750 detonations. You do not need to assume every weapon leads to a firestorm to be seriously concerned. End quote. However, the above, which is illustrated in Mike's graph below, only holds under Toon's view, not Reisner's. As I discussed, the second simulation of Reisner 2019 has high fuel load and produces a firestorm but results in basically, the same fraction of emitted soot being injected into the stratosphere in the first 40 minutes as the simulations of Reisner, 2018, which have low fuel load, and did not produce firestorms. The soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue yield I inferred from Toon's view, is 68.3 times the one I deduced from Reisner's view, and I think one should give some weight to both. There's an image here in the text. Having in mind the graph above, Mike says. Quote. 
To stress, this argument, nuclear winter is still a real threat, isn't just drawing two lines at the higher low estimates, drawing one between them and saying that is the reasonable answer. This is an argument that any significant targeting of cities, for example 250 plus detonations, with high yield strategic weaponry presents a serious risk of a climate shock if at least some of them cause firestorms. End quote. Since the above is only true under Toon's view, I believe Mike is in effect drawing a line, in light red and orange, between the bottom and top lines, in yellow and dark red, thus underweighting Reisner's view. Giving the same weight to Toon's and Reisner's view implies drawing a line between the bottom and top lines, but not on a linear scale as above. Since the results I deduced for the views differ by two orders of magnitude, I think one should draw that line on a logarithmic scale. That is combine the views using the geometric mean instead of the mean, as I did. One may argue the geometric mean is not adequate based on the following. If the soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue yield I deduced from Reissner's and Toon's view respects the 5th and 95th percentile of a log-normal distribution, the geometric mean is the median of the distribution, but what matters is its mean. This would be 5.93 asterisk 10 carat dash 4 TGKT, that is 2.28 equals 5.93 asterisk 10 carat dash 4, 2.60 asterisk 10 carat dash 4, times my best guess. I did not follow this approach because it is quite easy for an apparently reasonable distribution to have a nonsensical right tail which drives the expected value upwards. For instance, setting the soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue yield I deduced from Reissner's and Toon's view to the 25th and 75th percentile of a log-normal distribution, its mean would be 0.0350 TG a KT, which is 16.3, equals 0.0350 or 0.00215, times the 0.00215 TG a KT I deduced for Toon's view, that is apparently too high. I do not have a good sense of the quantiles corresponding to the results I calculated based on Reissner's and Toon's views. I guess it is better to treat the results I inferred from Reissner's and Toon's view as random samples of a log-normal distribution, as opposed to matching them to specific quantiles. Consequently, I use the geometric mean, since it is the MLE of the mean of a log-normal distribution, 18. Note that, before getting my best guess using the geometric mean, I adjusted Reissner's and Toon's view based on my available fuel per area for countervalue nuclear detonations, and Reissner's view for the emitted soot per burned fuel. I ultimately obtained famine deaths due to the climatic effects of a large nuclear war per total yield 7.81% of those of Shear 2022, which relies on Toon's view. I also noted linearly extrapolating the top line of Mike's graph would lead to 30 TG for zero detonations. In reality, there would be zero TG for zero detonations, so one cannot linearly extrapolate. The reason is that, under Toon's view, the soot injected into the stratosphere increases sublinearly for few detonations, as illustrated in the figure here. This is because Toon 2008. Quote. Assumed regions were targeted in decreasing order of population, and therefore soot injected into the stratosphere, within 5.25 kilometers of ground zero. End quote. I do not endorse this assumption. Subheading. Comparison with direct deaths. My analysis does not cover direct deaths, but I guess they would be 337m equals 164 plus 360 to 164 forward slash 440 to 50 asterisk 395 to 50 asterisk 10 carat 6 in a large nuclear war. 
considering my expected total explosive yield of 395 metric tons for a large nuclear war. Using this makes sense if direct deaths are proportional to burned area, which is larger than the blasted area. Linearly interpolating the results of Table 1 of Shia 2022 for a nuclear war between India and Pakistan. 4. 50 metric tons, 500 times 100 kt, 164 m. 440 metric tons, 4.4 k times 100 kt, 360 m. I expect 392m famine deaths due to the climatic effects of a large nuclear war, which suggests these would be 1.16, equals 392 asterisk 10 carat 6, 337 asterisk 10 carat 6, times the direct deaths. So I disagree with Bean that. Quote. All available data suggests it, climatic impact, would be dwarfed by the direct, and very bad, impacts of the nuclear war itself. End quote. Putting all weight in the soot injected into the stratosphere per countervalue yield I deduced from Reisner's or Toon's view, the famine deaths due to the climatic effects would be 14%, is equal to 1.16 times 0.121, or 9.59, is equal to 1.16 times 8.27, times the direct deaths. In other words, my best guess is that famine deaths due to the climatic effects are within the same order of magnitude of the direct deaths but one order of magnitude lower putting all weight in the result I inferred from Reisner's view, and one higher putting all weight in the one I inferred from Toon's view. Subheading. Cost-effectiveness of activities related to resilient food solutions. Subheading. Near-term perspective. The median cost to save a life among the four GiveWell's top charities is $5,000 per life. The ratio between this and those linked to the activities related to resilient food solutions is for planning, 171, equals 5 times 10 cubed divided by 29.3. For research, 160, equals 5 times 10 cubed divided by 31.2. For planning, research and development, 174, equals 5 times 10 cubed divided by 28.7. For planning, research, development and training, 52%, equals 5 asterisk 10 carat 3. 9.62 asterisk 10 carat 3. This suggests planning, research and development related to resilient food solutions is 2, equals log 10, 174, orders of magnitude more cost-effective than GiveWell's top charities. The above results are based on my estimates for the expected famine deaths due to the climatic effects of nuclear war, and the guesses provided in Denkenberger 2016 for the cost and effectiveness of activities related to resilient food solutions their cost-effectiveness would tend to be higher due to also decreasing deaths from other severe food shocks, such as those resulting from abrupt climate change, engineered crop pathogens, or other abrupt sunlight reduction scenarios, ASRSs, namely volcanic or impact winters. On the other hand, I suspect the values from Denkenberger 2016 are very optimistic, such that I am greatly overestimating the cost-effectiveness. My reasons for this are similar to the ones given by Joel Tan in the context of concluding Arsenal limitation is 5k times as effective as GiveWell's top charities. Quote. The headline cost effectiveness will almost certainly fall if this cause area is subjected to deeper research, a. This is empirically the case, from past experience. And, b. Theoretically, we suffer from optimizer's curse where causes appear better than the mean partly because they are genuinely more cost-effective, but also partly because of random error favoring them.
and when deeper research fixes the latter, the estimated cost-effectiveness falls. As it happens, CARCH intends to perform deeper research in this area, given that the headline cost-effectiveness meets our threshold of 10x that of a GiveWell top charity. End quote. I guess the true cost-effectiveness of planning, research and development related to resilient food solutions is two orders or magnitude lower than I estimated, that is within the same order of magnitude of that of GiveWell's top charities. Consequently, instead of expecting these three activities to reduce famine deaths at 0.379% M$ equals 0.264, 69.4**10**6, as suggested by Denkenberger 2016, I think their effectiveness to cost ratio is more like 0.00379% M$. Note this adjustment is not resilient. Furthermore, I have argued corporate campaigns for chicken welfare are 1.71k times as cost-effective as GiveWell's top charities, that is three orders of magnitude more cost-effective. If so, such campaigns would also be three orders of magnitude more cost-effective than activities related to resilient food solutions. Subheading. Long-term perspective. I am open to the idea that nuclear war can have long-term implications. As William McCaskills argued on the 80,000 Hours podcast. Quote. It's quite plausible, actually, when we look to the very long-term future, that that's, whether artificial general intelligence is developed in liberal democracies or, in some dictatorship or authoritarian state, the biggest deal when it comes to a nuclear war. The impact of nuclear war and the distribution of values for the civilization that returns from that, rather than on the chance of extinction, which is very low. End quote. Nonetheless. I believe it would be a surprising and suspicious convergence if broadly decreasing starvation, due to the climatic effects of nuclear war was among the most cost-effective interventions to increase democracy levels, or positively shape the development of transformative artificial intelligence, TAI. At least a priori. Here's a list of bullet points. I feel there are better ways of achieving these via AI safety technical research, AI governance and coordination. Information security in high-impact areas, AI hardware, China-related AI safety and governance paths, understanding India and Russia better, or improving China-Western coordination on global catastrophic risks. The shorter the TAI timelines, the more cost-effective. I expect interventions in these areas to be relative to broadly decreasing starvation due to the climatic effects of nuclear war. In the cases where prevention is less cost-effective than response and resilience, although they all matter, I would argue working on response and resilience in the context of the above areas would still be preferable. This would be by understanding how great power conflict, nuclear war, catastrophic pandemics, and especially AI catastrophes would affect post-catastrophe democracy levels and development of TAI. AGI lock-in may be the closest mechanism available to ensure value lock-in, for better or worse, although I have doubts. Mitigating starvation after a population loss of 50% does not seem that different from saving a life now, and I estimate a probability of 3.29**10**6 of such a loss, due to the climatic effects of nuclear war before 2050. In reality, the probability of such population loss is higher due to model uncertainty. However, human extinction would be very unlikely to happen soon even in that case. As Carl Schulman said, alone and directly, not as a contributing factor to something else later, enough below 0.1% that I evaluate nuclear interventions based mainly on their casualties and disruption, not extinction. I would, and have, support them in the same kind of metric as GiveWell, not in extinction risk.
So, although I guess it is possible to improve the long-term future even if the risk of worse than 50% population losses is negligible, I would like to see more specific arguments about how less starvation at the margin results in better transformative AI. That's the end of the list. For these reasons, I think activities related to resilient food solutions are not cost-effective at increasing the long-term value of the future, neither via decreasing the risk of human extinction, nor improving the values of TAI. By not cost-effective, I mostly mean I do not see those activities being competitive with the best opportunities to decrease AI risk, and improve biosecurity and pandemic preparedness at the margin, like long-term future funds marginal grants. As another factor informing my view, I conclude in the next section that the expected importance of accelerating economic growth via decreasing famine deaths, due to the climatic effects of nuclear war decreases with mortality. Some important caveats. I am underestimating the expected importance by excluding deaths due to non-climatic effects, which make the population lower, thus increasing the value of saving lives. The expected cost-effectiveness may well increase with mortality due to higher tractability times neglectedness. Economic growth may not contribute at the margin to a better future overall. I judge differential progress to be a better proxy for that. Rapid diminution of the long-term value of accelerating economic growth. Under my assumptions, the long-term value of accelerating economic growth via decreasing deaths due to the climatic effect of nuclear war presents what I think David Thorstad calls rapid diminution. In essence, the right tail of the probability density function, PDF, of the famine death rate due to the climatic effects decays much faster than the growth in the long-term value of saving lives, due to accelerating economic growth. Hence the expected value of saving lives for higher famine death rate due to the climatic effects also decreases. To illustrate, the 90th, 99th and 99.98 percentile famine deaths due to the climatic effects of a large nuclear war have. Famine death rate due to the climatic effects of 11.9%, 26.4% and 39.2%, whereas the median deaths are 2.21%. If the long-term value of saving lives is inversely proportional to population size due to accelerating economic growth, the values of saving an additional life are 1.11, equals, 1 to 0.0221, forward slash, 1 to 0.119, 1.33, equals, 1 to 0.0221, forward slash, 1 to 0.264, and 1.61, equals, 1 to 0.0221, forward slash. 1 to 0.392, times that of the median deaths. The probability densities are 15.3%, 1.65% and 0.192% as high as that of the median deaths. The expected value densities of saving an additional life are 17%, is equal to 0.153 times 1.11, 2.19%, is equal to 0.0165 times 1.33, and 0.309% is equal to 0.00192 times 1.61, that for the median deaths. Therefore improving worst-case outcomes does not appear to be the driver of the overall expected value. In addition, my expected famine death rate, due to the climatic effects of 4.43% corresponds to the 66.8th percentile outcome of a large, nuclear war. These suggest maximizing the number of, expected, Lives saved is a better proxy for maximizing long-term value due to accelerating economic growth than the heuristic of minimizing the probability of a given population loss. 
Relatedly, there is a case for long-termists to use standard cost-benefit analyses in the political sphere. Denkenberger 2016 and Denkenberger 2018 are examples of following such an approach in the context of activities, related to resilient food solutions. For reference, improving worst-case outcomes is also not the driver of the long-term value of accelerating economic growth based on Louisa's results, her expected famine death rate, due to the climatic effects of 75.5% matches the 47.1th percentile outcome given at least one offensive nuclear detonation in the United States or Russia, and there is rapid diminution too. Her 90th, 99th and 99.9th percentile deaths have famine death rate due to the climatic effects of 99.3%, 99.660% and 99.661%, whereas the median deaths are 78.4%. If the long-term value of saving lives is inversely proportional to population size, the values of saving an additional life are 30.9, equals, 1 to 0.784, forward slash, 1 to 0.993, 63.5, equals, 1 to 0.784, forward slash, 1 to 0.99660, and 63.7, equals, 1 to 0.784, forward slash. 1 to 0.99661, times that of the median deaths. The probability densities are 0.0613, equals 0.0974 or 1.59, 6.73 asterisk 10 carat dash 6, equals 1.07 times 10 to the power of negative 5 divided by 1.59, and 3.35 asterisk 10 carat dash 5, equals 5.33 times 10 to the power of negative 5 divided by 1.59 times as high as that of the median deaths. The expected value densities of saving an additional life are 1.89, is equal to 0.0613 times 30.9, 0.0427%, equals 6.73 times 10 to the power of negative 6 times 63.5, and 0.213%, equals 3.35 times 10 to the power of negative 5 times 63.7, that for the median deaths. I see some potential red flags above. I expected. Here's a list of bullet points. The famine death rate due to the climatic effects to increase for high percentiles, but Louisa's 99.98 percentile is 1.00, equals 0 0.99660, 0.99661, times her 99th percentile. These percentiles respect a death toll of 8.83 g, which is the world population, excluding Australia and New Zealand, I inputted into Louisa's model. So the famine death rate due to the climatic effects does not increase for high percentiles, because it is rapidly approaching extinction levels outside of these countries. For Louisa's 90th, 99th and 99.90th percentile famine death rate due to the climatic effects, the surviving population outside of Australia and New Zealand is 36.2 m. 160k and 1.77k. The probability density to decrease for high percentiles, but Louisa's 99.98 percentile famine death rate due to the climatic effects is 4.98, equals 5.33 asterisk 10 carat dash 5, a 1.07 asterisk 10 carat dash 5, times as likely as her 90th percentile. I repeated the calculation for another two runs of Louisa's guesstimate model. These resulted in the 99.98th percentile being 4.51, equals 1.51 asterisk 10 carat dash 3, 3.35 asterisk 10 carat dash 4, 
and 0.260 equals 1.91 asterisk 10 carat dash 4, 7.34 asterisk 10 carat dash 4 times as likely as the 90th. Ideally, the Monte Carlo simulation would have been run with more samples. That's the end of the list. Subheading. Left tails. It is often hard to find interventions which are robustly beneficial. In my mind, decreasing the famine deaths due to the climatic effects of nuclear war is no exception, and I think it is unclear whether that is beneficial or harmful from both a near-term and long-term perspective. The Benevolence, Intelligence, and Power, BIP, framework suggests how saving human lives may not be sufficient for an intervention to be beneficial. According to it. Quote. It's likely good to. 1. Increase actors' benevolence. 2. Increase the intelligence of actors who are sufficiently benevolent. 3. Increase the power of actors who are sufficiently benevolent and intelligent. And that it may be bad too. 1. Increase the intelligence of actors who aren't sufficiently benevolent. 2. Increase the power of actors who aren't sufficiently benevolent and intelligent. End quote. I see saving human lives, and the capability approach to human welfare more broadly, as mostly about increasing power, which goes to zero if one dies. However, I am not confident increasing power in an untargeted way is good. I must emphasize not saving lives has drastically different consequences from killing people, which is much more anti-cooperative. I strongly oppose killing people, including via nuclear war. All things considered. My intuition is that at the margin it would be good if interventions which are mainly cost-effective at saving lives, not at increasing long-term value, focused more on actively minimizing harmful effects on animals, and ensuring beneficial long-term effects. Subheading. Near-term perspective. From a near-term perspective, I am concerned with the meat-eater problem, and believe it can be a crucial consideration. The people whose lives were saved thanks to resilient food solutions would go on to eat factory-farmed animals which may well have sufficiently bad lives for the decrease in human mortality to cause net suffering. In fact, net global welfare may be negative and declining. I estimated the annual welfare of all farmed animals combined is minus 12.0 times that of all humans combined, which suggests not saving a random human life might be good, minus 12 less than minus 1. Nonetheless, my estimate is not resilient, so I am mostly agnostic with respect to saving random human lives. There is also a potentially dominant beneficial or harmful effect on wild animals. Accordingly, I am uncertain about whether decreasing famine deaths due to the climatic effects of nuclear war would be beneficial or harmful. I think the answer would depend on the country, with saving lives being more beneficial in, usually low-income, countries with lower consumption per capita of farmed animals with bad lives. I calculated the cost-effectiveness of saving lives in the countries targeted by GiveWell's top charities, only decreases by 22.4% accounting for negative effects on farmed animals, which means it would still be beneficial, 0.224 less than 1. Some hopes would be. Resilient food solutions mostly save lives in countries where there is low consumption per capita of animals with bad lives. The conditions of animals significantly improving or the consumption of animals with bad lives majorly decreasing in the next few decades, before an eventual nuclear war starts. The decreased consumption of animals in high-income countries during the first few years after the nuclear war persisting to some extent. Bear in mind price dash, taste dash, and convenience competitive plant-based meat would not currently replace meat. 
Another downside I am not too worried about is the moral hazard of preparing for the climatic effects of nuclear war. This would tend to increase the probability of a large nuclear war, a number of offensive nuclear detonations conditional on its occurrence. In the survey, S. and Anders Sandberg's, E. model of Denkenberger 2022, it is guessed such hazard would only decrease long-term cost-effectiveness by 4% and 0.4% for a full-scale nuclear war, and 2% and 0.04% for a 10% agricultural shortfall, thus not making preparation harmful. I intuitively agree the moral hazard would not be a major effect. Nonetheless, I welcome further research like that of Ingram 2023, which investigated the public awareness of nuclear winter, and its implication for escalation control. Subheading. Long-term perspective. It is somewhat unclear to me whether generally mitigating the food shocks caused by nuclear war would change values for the better. I concluded it would in expectation if they were fully mitigated everywhere, but that there would still be a one-third chance of an overall negative effect in that case. More importantly, nationally mitigating food shocks would be harmful not only in pessimistic cases, but also in expectation in 40.7% equals 59-145 of the countries I analyzed. All results should be taken with a big grain of salt, as they rely on quite speculative assumptions, but I would still say the sign of the long-term impact is unclear. It also looks like there is a potential trade-off between maximizing near-term and long-term effects. Saving lives in low-income countries is tendentially cheaper, and consumption per capita of animals with bad lives is lower there. Nonetheless, to the extent GDP per capita is a good proxy for influence per person on the long-term future, targeting high-income countries may be better if reducing famine there does lead to sufficiently better democracy levels or TAI, and is sufficiently cheap. Nevertheless, Resilient food solutions potentially having a beneficial impact on the long-term future via would not automatically render the uncertainty around the near-term effects irrelevant. Although I subscribe to expectational total hedonistic utilitarianism, and agree the expected value of the future is way higher than that of this century, interventions usually do not differ astronomically in expected cost-effectiveness. If it is possible to majorly improve the long-term future by decreasing the 4.43% starvation famine deaths, Due to the climatic effects of a large nuclear war, interventions which increase resilience to smaller food shocks would presumably not be over seven orders of magnitude less effective. There are various potential such interventions which would not classically be identified as long-termist. For example, increasing agricultural productivity across sub-Saharan Africa, or accelerating economic growth in low-income countries, which can also be achieved by global health and development interventions. Yet. Interventions aiming to decrease starvation famine deaths due to the climatic effects of nuclear war are much more neglected than the above, which contributes to them being more effective. Subheading. My personal recommendations for funders. I encourage funders who have been supporting efforts to decrease nuclear risk, improving prevention, response or resilience, to do the following. If they aim to. Here's a list of bullet points. Decrease the risk of human extinction, or improve the long-term future. Support interventions to decrease AI risk by donating to the Long-Term Future Fund, LTFF, as I personally do with my donations. Increase near-term welfare, support interventions to improve farmed animal welfare by donating to the Animal Welfare Fund, or ACE's recommended charity fund. Increase near-term human welfare with high confidence, and put low weight on effects on animals. Support interventions in global health and development by donating to GiveWell's top charities fund.
Continue in the nuclear space, support Longview's Nuclear Weapons Policy Fund, which directs funding to unresourced and high-leverage opportunities to reduce the threat of large-scale nuclear warfare. It is the only fund solely focused on nuclear risk, and aligned with effective altruism I am aware of, and I like the four components of their grant-making strategy. Understanding the new nuclear risk landscape. Reduce the likelihood of accidental and inadvertent nuclear war. Educate policymakers on these issues. Strengthen field-wide capacity. That's the end of the list. These are my personal recommendations at the margin. I am not arguing for interventions decreasing nuclear risk to receive zero resources, nor for all these to be funded via Longview's Nuclear Weapons Policy Fund. I agree with giving what we can's recommendation for most people to donate to expert-managed funds, and have not recommended any specific organizations above. Heading. Acknowledgements. Thanks to Anonymous Person 1, Anonymous Person 2, Anonymous Person 3, Anonymous Person 4, Anonymous Person 5, Anonymous Person 6, Anonymous Person 7, Anonymous Person 8, Anonymous Person 9, Finn Moorhouse, Stan Pincent and Stephen Clare for feedback on the draft. Thanks to GPT-44. Coding the colab to calculate the parameters of a beta distribution given two quantiles and the colab to obtain the parameters of a beta distribution from its mean and ratio between two quantiles, explaining how to estimate the ratio between the 95th and 5th percentile of the product of independent log-normal distributions given the ratios between the 95th and 5th percentile of the various factors, and feedback on the draft. This article was narrated by Type 3 Audio for the Effective Altruism Forum. It was first published on October 14, 2023. The original text contained 78 footnotes which were omitted from the narration. To report an issue or give feedback on this narration, go to t3a.is.